This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to I'm Khaled. And today, uh, for our 50th episode, woohoo. Um, yeah, I was realizing this before long. that. Yeah, I was realizing before we didn't really attend our episode 50 with like too much like pomp and circumstance. We didn't like plan anything like very ceremonious, but I think that's fine. You know, that's uh, okay. Yeah, um, maybe for a hundred, we'll do like. Uh, a jihad of Palooza or something. Big blowout, exactly. Yeah, um, a, a twenty-five uh, we'll hour Q and A, like occultically significant numbers, like thirteen. Maybe yeah, I don't know. Uh, Good point. We'll, Fifty we'll, we'll is just an even. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not 50, sure what. You know, yeah, it's half of a hundred. It's centenary. I don't know, like mm-hmm. a hemicentenary. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, exactly. Yeah. But uh, anyway. but I think I think the topic we're gonna get into today is still uh kind of something uh that it. It's a nice little treat, um, you know, going back into the world of cinema and uh, picking up on some things that I think we talked about in uh, in the Laurel Canyon episode uh, as yeah. it relates to Hollywood in the 1970s. Uh, but I think unlike unlike that episode where we ruthlessly slayed all of your favorite boomer idols uh and expose them for the intelligence assets and uh satanic uh pedos that they are uh i think uh we're probably at least i'm not going to do that to the subject of today's episode because i am kind of standing a little bit uh i'm kind of going into like Mm -hmm. an eagles mode with brian de palma yeah you were telling me that before that you were getting into an eagles uh an eagle's point with uh with the palma um which yeah i guess we'll explore uh as uh, we continue Um, i guess we'll we'll find out who lied because somebody lied um right just as like lebowski lied and khrushchev lied uh and miller Mm -hmm. lied uh and tarantino lied uh uh, i mean that that hits Uh, almost closest to home uh because you know uh, brian de palma you know, one of the greatest yeah, uh, filmmakers of his day. Like pretty, yeah, you were going on a pretty heated tirade about how he hasn't gotten the respect uh, that he deserves compared to yes. like Scorsese and Spielberg and his his peers and that sort of boomer filmmaker uh, milieu. 
Exactly, exactly. That is uh, that's really the similar kind of uh, you know eagle's flame of the kind of slightly contrarian uh, I guess positioning that uh, gets me excited sometimes uh, because when you notice there's the kind of an asymmetry of praise for certain artists and then a slight maybe over symmetry of praise in other ones and. Brian De Palma, I think it's uh, it's intriguing because he was such close friends with all of his peers in the New Hollywood in the 1970s, which were mainly Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, um, probably to some extent uh, Michael Cimino, and uh, and even Robert De Niro, who I didn't realize this till I watched the uh, the documentary De Palma that he started his like film acting career in Brian De Palma's student films at Sarah Lawrence. Uh, but like even that Scorsese gets all the credit for like quote unquote discovering Bobby De Niro in Mean Streets. But like four years before that, he was in two De Palma movies where he played a draft dodger and uh, and not not really like an Italian tough guy, which is kind of interesting. Um, and but yeah, like th- all of his peers, I mean, you could say like Francis Ford Coppola kind of peeled off, but now he's like a wine baron and, you know, he still has like cachet and his whole family's in Hollywood. George Lucas obviously is a billionaire. Billionaire who sold Disney to, or sold Star Wars to the white slavers at Disney. Uh, Steven Spielberg like, has his own studio and is you know all over everything in Hollywood. And Scorsese is kind of like the resident you know film geek like uh, you know a prestige auteur I guess you could say uh, who has like a million deal you know movie deal with Netflix etc. But then you know you look at Brian De Palma, somebody who is incredibly prolific. And pumped out a lot of like very memorable uh, films over about like a period of about 30 years. And he's being relegated to basically doing like straight to VOD like thrillers that are shot on like a cheap budget in Europe. Yeah. And it makes you wonder perhaps why. And of course, there's been a critical conversation. There are defenders of De Palma. It's not, I don't want to say that basically <laughs> that like nobody appreciates him at all. But I do get the sense that like for some reason, especially in maybe uh, his later career, we're going to talk about a film that was probably like his biggest failure and provoked like a huge backlash from various sectors of American society, which was his Iraq mockumentary redacted yeah. uh, which is a really mission to mars but uh, yeah right, no, right? Uh, no, he <laughs> admits he admits the mission Magar, mission to mars was not good one of his few kind of like full misses uh i i'd say uh to to use a lame baseball metaphor brian de palma was basically consistently like getting getting base hits and like occasional home runs and occasional grand slams for about a 30 year run and only occasionally struck out. Uh, unlike Friedkin, who was like really uh, once the 80s kind of got underway, it's like even if the aspects of the movie were interesting, they really didn't connect. A lot of them like, you know, flopped at the box office and he doesn't even like half of them. And uh, but with De Palma, he was able to keep it going. I mean, up through the mid 90s with like Mission Impossible, which I didn't really have a huge desire to go back and watch. So we didn't cover uh, all of his films, but I think that would be yeah. impossible in one episode because These this are, dude was we're so... We're going to go into some of his, uh, you know, bit more marginal uh, entries. Uh, some of his know, deep we cuts, We're not going to yeah. talk about Scarface. We're not no, gonna talk not about, really. Uh, Mission uh, Impossible. We're not yeah, talking about Carrie. Maybe, 
No, yeah, no, we're not going to no. talk about Carrie either, you know. Yeah, but obviously he's made those uh, very famous movies. Yeah, um, we might refer in yeah. passing to some of them, but uh, I would say if I'm just going through the list here of ones that I watched like in the past year, uh, pretty much all of which I enjoyed to varying degrees. I watched, uh, I guess, starting from the beginning, The Fury. Both of us watched that very recently from 1978. Yeah. Uh, I watched Blowout, Dress to Kill, Body Double, um, Raising Cane, Snake Eyes, Femme Fatale, The Black Dahlia, and Redacted. Uh, and uh, watched a few of those in the past uh, week. And there's just something I don't it would be it would feel like a heavier lift with most filmmakers to like mainline a bunch of their movies straight for a week. But there, I don't know. You can disagree if you'd like. But there's something so kind of like uh, singular about his approach to filmmaking that is like so I feel like he's he is one of those directors where if you put on his film I would be able to guess with a pretty good certainty that it was a De Palma movie, even if I had like never heard of it. By the way the camera is moving, by the way the blocking and the scenes are set up, by that like split screen effect he loves using, and the presence of like scantily clad beautiful women in peril, etc. Like a weird kind of um, aspy stalker artist character that is obviously a stand-in for De Palma. Um, mm-hmm. There are these yeah. things that like basically rhyme throughout. Um, One of the all best of his anecdotes. Movies that he told in uh, the documentary De Palma, which I watched in preparation for this episode, we both Mm -hmm. did, uh, is uh, that as a child, you know, he came to suspect that his father was cheating on him. Or sorry, cheating on his family, I guess, cheating on his mother, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, he, uh, you know, like sort of staked out his office, which is across the street, you know, and he Mm -hmm. saw this woman coming in and out and one day he just like ran in there with a knife and like screamed like where is she like where is she and like found her like in the closet and like that like sensibility like runs through like all of the you know uh, De Palma protagonists uh, absolutely that... absolutely and he actually he re-dramatized that episode from his life into Dress to Kill in 1980 where he had like a teenage character who is a kind of like this computer whiz nerd, which is also relevant. We'll get to that. Uh, and he basically uh, a very similar thing. He starts to suspect that like his psychiatrist father is having an affair, and so he sets up like a surveillance like sixteen millimeter camera that like is on a timer or something to like catch the video of them and like surveillance like voyeurism snooping spying these are all things that are like really central to like all of his movies and like he's kind of obsessed with like these things um i don't know if i would even call them subject matters but it's like it's a a themes and like a pattern of experience yeah motifs and of course he was like really influenced by hitchcock he claims kind of funnily in the movie in the documentary i'm the only one who was like kept uh, the legacy of hitchcock alive uh you know everyone else is you know everyone says he's so influential but no one has Mm -hmm. truly upheld his style except for me which is a hot take but also he's kind of not completely wrong about that i'd say maybe he is the one like hitchcock purist uh who you know has Uh, upheld those kind of like principles i could definitely see that his passion for hitchcock exceeds uh that of others and like certainly yeah i mean that whole like rear window type hitchcockian sensibility you know and i mean he talks in that documentary with such enthusiasm about vertigo you know i mean definitely i would agree that in terms of like the stylistic lineage like uh yeah it's definitely true Uh, like 
I mean, I guess, to, like, if you're self-consciously saying, like, I am going to be more Hitchcockian than anyone, then it's going to kind of fulfill itself. Uh, but Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, um, he, he had other influences as well. And, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I guess we can just go through and maybe, like, talk about a little bit about, like, his life and some of his works like we will do you know a sus check to make sure that you know he's not some kind of a agent but i don't know what was the yeah. just your first impression I mean, of like watching him like you know uh tell his own story in that documentary i thought that like, he as a person seemed more likable than friedkin maybe well i don't know i did i did kind of get like a creep vibe from him like i you know mm -hmm. he's a bit of a creep in the same way that like his protagonists like his are often sort of in that creep mold uh yes. like that sort of heroic creep but then again you know like uh maybe uh being uh a creepy on the surface is uh better than being creepy surreptitiously you know and like uh i don't know like uh i'm thinking like maybe he's less creepy than joss whedon whom uh you know is like a self-styled mm -hmm. woke bay or whatever you uh -huh. know maybe like uh, i would take the palm over that i mean that's my depression of him as a person um you know yes, i honestly yes. i think that friedkin is uh i prefer freaking i think a little bit like i liked okay. uh phantom of the paradise you know again i'm not like the same level of the palma connoisseur uh but i do think that you know and i i don't think that you were necessarily comparing him with a uh, william freaking in terms of saying that because i don't think freaking really is someone who's held up as like uh in this pantheon of boomer filmmakers either but uh he's fallen by the know, wayside maybe, as well yeah yeah i mean maybe i respond more to friedkin's uh uh sort of intellectual bent and his interest in maybe his thematic interests uh in mm -hmm. like religion and in fate uh whereas maybe you resonate more with uh, the palma's interests in like surveillance and like spying paranoia um, and, i think like yeah. the, the the psychological experience of paranoia um and the like the complexity um i think we we will get into in like some of his movies but some something that jumped out at me is he mentions a few times in the documentary he brings up the zabruder film and mm -hmm, he definitely yeah. brings it up from the perspective of a kind of person that believes that there was a conspiracy in the JFK assassination. Yeah, well, I really um, liked his description of, like, his inspiration for the movie Blow Up, which is very good, uh, or Blow Out, that is. Um, and uh, not to be confused with the other movie Blow Up. Um, Antonio and uh, Yeah, uh, yeah, the Blow Out was John Travolta. Uh, his description of uh, his inspiration for that was that he wanted to discuss or explore uh the idea that if it could be proven uh that you know there was a conspiracy to assassinate jfk if the zapruder film like did show that no one would care or it wouldn't yeah. make a difference you know which yeah. i think is a very uh interesting kernel uh of an idea and i think that that whole thing of like the assimilation of like resistance or the idea mm -hmm. that somehow these uh, uh the the proof or the smoking gun or the thing that is supposed to subvert the sort of evil plan uh mm -hmm. being in some way assimilated to uh that plan or to that agenda um mm -hmm. or uh the sort of uh twist where it's not uh what you would expect would send the whole edifice crumbling 
is actually like uh, made in some way, incorporated as part of that edifice. I feel like it was a recurring theme. Uh, you yeah. Know, even in Phantom of the Paradise, you know, which is oh, it's much, incredibly totally, big in Phantom know, of the Paradise. Like, yeah. Yeah. Even really, though, totally, honestly, it's very different from Blowout. It's still yeah. Know, very much. Like, I almost uh, wish that McGowan had gone into the content of Phantom of the Paradise a little bit more because I feel like it you don't want to just dismiss it as a kind of movie that is like, like, I don't know, a kind of sick movie that's like laughing about how like evil the music industry is. I mean, I think it's really, it's like an absurdist. It's almost like this bizarre, like Brechtian satire of the American Mm -hmm. music industry, like in the 1970s. And, uh, with a kind of like old, like monster movie horror kind of elements to it. And Mm -hmm. also these like kind of really strong, like musical montages. Kind of, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Like these, and the, yeah. The really music is interesting. The parodies of like uh, genres. Laurel Canyon the time. Yeah, 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 exactly. Of Laurel Canyon music. It's that the Laurel Canyon scene really is kind of what's being sent up in Phantom of the Paradise among other yeah. things. Like uh, there's a great I mean, in a way, it's uh, like montage a of the Phantom of the Opera. But yeah, uh, uh-huh. that's kind of the skeleton of the plot. But like the yeah, definitely the target of the satire in that movie is can best be summed up by saying that it's the world canyon scene um yes yeah. like a great sequence where the beach bums are playing a song called carburetor where it's like that's so carburetors funny. are the meaning of life like and it's like yeah. you know also you see the thing the dynamic in that sequence which ends with like a terrorist bombing from the phantom who's like a disfigured composer who's being like yeah. locked in the fucking theater mm-hmm. by like a phil specter like maniac uh named swan Played who by Paul like, Williams, who that was the big oh, thing. Yeah. That Big Allen oh, that's Paul, that Williams. Paul Williams. Yeah, oh, Paul Williams okay. really was like a Laurel Canyon figure. Um, okay, okay. The connection to Paul Rothschild that was sort of created like a, you know, Paul Rothschild was a demonic record producer. Uh, he was in the military unit with the guy who wrote the paperback novelization of Phantom of the Paradise. Gotcha. Oh, the story is originally a De Palma story, which yeah, sets it apart yeah. from the Fury, which I didn't really like as much. I think because. Uh, I mean, as the Palma kind of said in the documentary, like his heart wasn't like as in it uh, yeah, as much. Uh, he said it was but, like, you know, he thought he did a good job and it was OK, but like it wasn't yeah. like a passion project of his. And he, that's another thing like De Palma really doesn't get any credit for like being a screenwriter. Like, I feel yeah. like it's weird. Like he had the all constant attacks throughout his career for being like aesthetically vapid. And like he's just all yeah. about style. There's no substance there. I think people have said commonly like there's no real like recognizable De Palma kind of auteurish sense like it's just all tricks and like as if he's like michael bay or something anyways uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) but but Um, i feel like uh, there's a real vision going on like i mean definitely you see it in phantom of the paradise and like it is one of the more like very cynical takes on the entertainment industry i mean that first scene where the composer um goes to the mansion of swan and there's like a line of women out of the like basically almost out the mansion up the stairs and they're all Mm -hmm. going into like audition to basically sing his songs which have been stolen from him and like yeah uh, that one moment where it's like the the one girl he's talking to and kind of develops a little crush on he even has that very uh meta line of like 
uh, you know, uh, like, are you just being nice to me because I'm you, you want something? And he's like, I would never let I would never let, you know, uh, like personal feelings corrupt my aesthetic judgment or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, I would never but... let my personal desires like very uh, making fun of himself there. But then but then she it's her turn to go up and she gets like dragged into like this like terrifying like zoom in shot of like this room where like the the yeah, I love that like Swan to... has Hell's Angels. There's a cross-dressing theme, uh, definitely in De Palma's films oh, yeah. as well. Maybe between this and uh, you know uh, his uh, you know, more uh, much. He uh, is very interested. That. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Yes, uh, dressed um, to kill it, and yeah, raising Cain uh, both yes. have. Uh, uh, well, one has Michael Caine in drag, and one has a uh, John Lithgow in drag. Uh, and so, um, yeah, and that scene, the hero or like sort of the you know the focus character, uh, Winslow Leach. Uh, yeah. has this sort of it, who has his his uh, cantata of Faust stolen uh, yes. uh, you know <laughs> under uh, uh, you know his naivety is exploited by uh, sort of the the thug or underling of Swan this this record producer uh, yeah the, the sleazy manager the, the Herb Cohen yeah. basically uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just sort of yeah dupes him and says like you know in a month we're gonna do your first album uh, you know but he uh, never hears back from them and they just steal his, his music and they're gonna do it themselves to open the the paradise which is swan's yep. big and that you know there's the symbology of the movie there's many things about it that i think like really uh you know if you watch it carefully with like a critical like an eye or a look like you know ex- expecting uh something from it in terms of like a more than just like a schlocky uh you know uh joke movie or send up Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely like another thing uh, in terms of the beach bums uh, and the sort of Laurel Canyon uh, elements. I, it's interesting how they go through like multiple incarnations throughout the movie. Like they change yeah. musical styles. Like that's a whole it, theme. Aren't isn't that the meme that like basically the juicy fruits in the opening scene just keep transforming into a yeah, different the band juice, throughout they the movie? The juicy fruits, right? And then they become yeah. the beach bums. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and then like uh, nostalgia's over, so then they like have to move on to something, and then. And they get beef who's like a very yeah, like Alice, Alice Cooper the, yeah right uh or Bowie or something I don't know like what he I, was, it was yeah. something I like, feel that. like he maybe was Alice Cooper because he was American but he was odd yeah that's there it, it's it yeah uh that was his interesting choice where he kind of revealed himself to be like a very fey like gay man and like where is I thought that he was like genuinely like an untalented meathead who uh, there's a great scene where he's like sitting in like his space age desk and the lights go up on these different groups all around him that are like playing different styles. There's like a Laurel Canyon yeah, like, hippie band and then there's find, like a yeah. Motown girls and he's like, no, pretty, but yeah, no. And then he, he gets first, like this crappy yeah. guy who's like banging right. on a guitar and he's like, we could do something with him. Yeah, and well, that's actually <laughs> one of my favorite lines because like that's he says that's something he'll like or so I think which uh takes on like more meaning later mm. in the film because at first you're like who's he like yeah. who are you talking about you know that's like an i'll follow him kind of like oblique uh-huh. thing where it's like because uh-huh. he's not talking about your, your first thought might be he's talking about winslow the phantom yeah who at that point you know we're not doing a very good job of uh explaining the plot of the film but like uh <laughs> you know at that point he's kind of like uh yeah we should really talk about the plot of the film but well yeah uh, i mean yeah i mean like, we could say like it, it it i mean we mentioned it a little bit but basically the the basic setup is yeah you're right it kind of riffs off phantom of the opera but it takes place yes. in i think new york in the 70s and this like very kind of like nerdy composer obsessive composer 
uh, plays at like a, a kind of like this audition thing, mm-hmm. like this like very yeah, creepy. Well, what's the thing? What what is the deal with the first? I mean, it's hilarious, but that first song that the the Juicy Fruit sing in the movie is about like some guy who committed suicide. It's like, like really s- funny. It's like and he's doing uh, like he's doing like West like, Side Story, like kind of Puerto Rican like minstrelsy. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. like they're like, like a doo-wop like grease group and it's yeah, very yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very like, impressive uh, like a performance, but like bizarre. And mm-hmm. uh yeah, because they're like yeah, a fifties like, throwback like, Eugene, group. Eugene, like, you know, what you did, like we'll never forget you. Like some weird song about like some. And guy then he commits Sepaka like, with like a no switchblade. Yeah, I have no idea who Eugene is even supposed to be. Yeah, like uh um but anyway, um, it, it, it I don't know kept, if it was established. Yeah. But anyways, um, like I mean, that's just the opening scene. But this uh, this composer, this like nerdy composer, who's very almost like you know like a James Taylor, like but like weirder and like nerdier, but like uh, yeah, you like know not really Palma photogenic, kind of you know. Yes, yeah. uh, absolutely, De Palma surrogate. And uh, it, the first part of the movie is like very like slapstick. I mean, it all kind of <laughs> is. But he plays this like song, and uh, there's uh, the the sleazy manager guy and Swan are like watching, and he's like get me that you know uh, get me that song and yeah. uh and but basically he's like not really seen he's all in the shadows you know it's yeah, like and also kind of i don't know if you idea. noticed this but in the very first shot there's a great like one shot take where the sleazy manager is talking to the camera yeah and he's exactly. complaining about the girl yeah. singing on stage and he's like i got her whole career i got her hooked up at this and that and now she yeah. wants to go off and blah, blah blah and and then he's like talking you realize he's talking to swan and he says something like you know like i want you to break her and and he's like in due time and then you see his hands and he's wearing fucking like mason gloves yeah he's well he says like uh yeah yeah there's there's a few times he's like projected to be a mason the symbology of the movie is very interesting actually uh like that's a whole other thing like uh i feel like yeah uh but we can talk about that like as it comes uh, out i guess but yeah like uh he says something very interesting in that scene actually where he says like uh you know i think he says like she's dead or something like uh you know she's already over it's like what are you talking about you know she's she's got everything like you know she's a star which is like no like you know she like in in before you know it like she'll be yeah like for now yeah but it's already Um, been decided this guy just basically plays like kingmaker and honestly this is another interesting example of a movie with like the way De Palma gets talked about maybe in terms of like uh like me too kind of like things like that where you know on the one hand uh does De Palma ogle and objectify like his attractive female characters and show a lot of nudity and like definitely embody and almost like revel in the male gaze yes uh however like he also shows like I mean, if you want a kind of an upper a depiction of like 1970s, like, you know, uh, Me Too kind of like Hollywood culture, this movie kind of serves it up pretty raw. And you see like constantly like the the casting couch stuff, like the abusive, like manipulative attitudes of like the managers and the handlers and Swan, who basically just has like uh, I think what you're getting to is like when uh, when leech uh isn't that his name right leech uh winslow yeah, leech. leech yeah when he goes to the uh, yeah. mansion and there's that line of people and then the girl uh goes in for her audition and like immediately you see through like kind of the swinging double doors like swan like immediately leap on her and there's all these like hell's angels bodyguards by the way the record label is also called death records which is like yeah it was originally uh, really called actually swan song like you know kind oh, of a okay. part of the name of the character but yeah. that actually was the real company 
that like uh or the real record label that released uh led zeppelin's albums oh like, yeah you're time. right that's right so they, they got like sued. slapped with a lawsuit so they had to change to death records which is you know <laughs> really good i like how he is like okay yeah. well we'll just drop the euphemism you know we'll just yeah. drop the metaphor of this law and the fact that it. everyone's just like cheering yeah. For, like yeah death records and it's like it's, it's so he is so obviously evil like it's just like yeah. come on like this guy um, but yet but, he has all the power and he has like literally he has like a rotating bed where he just like in you know dresses these girls up who are like auditioning yeah. for him by basically having like a lesbian orgy it, that yeah, he, he joins in makes on them have a lesbian orgy yeah like oh i just wanted to say like i looked up the lyrics it's actually not eugene it's eddie but this first song the juicy fruit sing kind of to open the movie like I, you might not even catch this like even if you're watching the film because like you know uh you might be just like struck by like the hilarity of the performance like uh-huh. the story of the song is actually like about uh you know, you'll probably remember it if I say it like I said, uh, you know, we'll remember you forever, Eddie. Through the sacrifice you made, we can't believe yeah. the price you paid for love. Yeah. Like the whole yeah. song uh-huh. is about a guy who like, uh, you know, his sister needed an operation. Yeah. So he killed himself so that he could have like a hit album, like as a postmortem star. Yes. To pay yes. for her operation. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah the, it's it's I mean, the idea of like the sacrificed pop star who then becomes like a legend for it lives forever. And like that is served right at the beginning in the, the form of this like goofy, like doo-wop throwback you know uh yeah it's kind of like uh it reminds one of the song american pie mentioned in weird scenes yeah no it absolutely does yeah the whole nostalgia wave of like and then that band like morphing into the beach bums and then morphing into like beefs like backing band um yeah you know uh when he opens up the coffin style makeup at that point like yeah uh, yeah that's probably yeah kiss too is like and i think it seems like like de palma definitely has like the greatest amount of contempt he has kind of contempt for like all of this like nostalgia wave but like particularly for that like rock and roll like bleh like you know i mean basically there's a really bizarre scene when like beef makes his uh debut later in the movie and not to jump around uh continuously yeah. again but whatever like go watch it it's good um and uh like so beef is like there's a series of singers uh, uh basically that uh, swan uses like uh, to sing the cantata and the music of like uh, yeah. a leech and like he they get increasingly kind of more ridiculous and like the the one he rolls out is like this this like weird guy who he calls beef who's like a shocking like like alice cooper kind of like hard rock like screecher and like it's pretty much like the worst rendition of like winslow's music possible is like this one he there's a singer who has like a beautiful voice who's very much like a linda ronstadt basically just like a talented girl who's like not down with like the casting couch shit and like takes you know takes her her work seriously and you know it's like in in a natural world it's like maybe the exoteric narrative of like this 1970s music scene is that like uh uh that leech and her would like you know join together and form this like beautiful kind of collaborative creative partnership and she would sing his songs and then like they would both be successful but De Palma's pretty like firm that like nah that's not how it works like yeah. instead this psychotic maniac is gonna just like ruthlessly exploit all of it he basically um he gets like there's a really funny like MK part in the beginning so basically like once um 
once Leech like figures out that his music's been stolen, uh, he tries to uh, I forget what does he well, do to he get first, arrested? He goes oh, immediately. Well, he goes immediately he to gets the arrested. manor. Yeah, and then Swans when Fawns finds him amidst like you know he get he infiltrates by cross dressing the yes, lesbian that's right. orgy that Swan has like arranged for his pleasure, mm-hmm. and then Swan's first line, well you know not his first line because we have a scene of him off camera kind of talking about the demise of this uh, person to Philbin, but he get this yeah get this bag out of here slur out of here yeah exactly which is yeah and it's it has that like sort of tension that like runs you know as you said like Beefcake kind of has this like very queer you know, the whole thing is like very campy and i think that that's something that's true of many of the palmas films they have this kind of like a gay or queer i will say this i will say this thought Um, popped into my head real quick uh watching i think that the other night is like to palma is proof that like straight men too can do camp (laughs) like you know it's Um, like maybe only him he's like in fact like not queer in some way like you know we do we know that's true i mean he does he does definitely have a certain like voyeuristic uh, obsessive gaze w- uh, towards women. So uh, he's definitely in, but, he's definitely attracted to women. Uh, I don't know if he's also you know what what else is going on there. Uh, yeah, well, also it, but, I think uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, the, there's it's something... interesting how like yeah the first thing that this guy I mean Paul Williams himself has a very distinctive look and like he has that kind of lisp and a very flamboyant manner. And he mm-hmm. kind of reads at least as like, you know, kind of queer in some way. So yeah. there's a great irony. It's like his first line being this like homophobic thing. And I think that that sort of tension of like the the kind of like masculinity of the 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 non-masculinity or whatever, mm-hmm. the sort of the inversion uh, runs through that like sort of uh, anxiety almost, that like weird Freudian thing where like the the there's this uh, yeah. terror or something that, well, that comes it's an from interesting... the, the, subversion of the masculinity or the the absence of like genuine masculinity Uh, it's an interesting contrast that basically swan is kind of affecting this very um uh yeah kind of a queer adjacent kind of a you know sophisticated like funny fey kind of thing i mean then the uh, but he's like he's like ferociously straight and is in fact like kind of like a serial predator of like women but then Mm -hmm. beef the other character is playing this hyper masculine like tough guy macho like maniac rock singer but he's like a very fey gay man who's just like playing a part and so yeah. it's like they're doing this opposite kind of thing going on. Nobody is really everyone's kind of doing the opposite of like what it seems they're uh, presenting yeah. themselves at. But as, and yeah. yeah. But as you mentioned, like, uh, yeah, that's this is really like a, you know, a key like crux part of the film is the what happens after that, because, you know, after he says, I get this uh, F slur out of here, <laughs> uh, you know, he's like thrown into the street, like kind of beaten up. And then, like, two uh, black cops, kind of in a mm. uh, little bit of an inversion here, two yeah. black cops plant, like, smack on him. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, he tr- there's, like, a quick sort of uh, montage of him trying to plead before the judge, uh, you know, that actually Swan stole his music. You know, the judge is like, you're a liar. You know, he gets thrown into, you know, Sing Sing in kind of yeah. a, a, a play on words. And there... There's like oh an experimental God. program, that, yeah. you know, over the, yeah. like he becomes but yeah, sponsored he, by the Swan Foundation, which is like, yeah. okay, like that was when the movie got like completely pension esque for me. I realized like this is kind of like inherent vice or like something like that. Like this is like a Pinchonian kind of view on like the world of like that New York, L.A. world of the time. And it even has like this weird MK moment in it. 
where they're yeah, like, we're going to replace all of your teeth, uh, right? Yeah, with like silver, yeah, or like grills. Uh, yeah, grills, yeah. It's like what happened to like Lil Uzi Vert, probably. Um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, this, and ever from the very beginning of the movie, you know, when uh, uh, Wolf, Wolf, Winslow, Winslow Leach at the very beginning, you know, when Philbin first suggests that the Juicy Fruits might sing his cantata he has this outburst of anger so he has an uh-huh. anger problem from the very beginning and yeah. while he's working kind of on like the assembly line and then like, so the chain gang in this prison after his grill operation he's wearing hears, a swan like, foundation hat looking like very yeah, mk'd yeah he sees like or, or hears something about how you know he's going to open the paradise with this uh you know thing that he's not credited for and yeah, he the just radio. freaks yeah yeah he freaks out and just uh, does a jailbreak and this is like his transformation to the Phantom, where he breaks into like a record uh, press, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, I actually read that like the record press that the actor had to put his head into, like did actually like, kind of squeeze him, and he almost like was injured in it. But oh uh, he, you know, in the process of trying to infiltrate and like uh, you know disrupt the manufacturer of steal of the masters records, or something, yeah, 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 yeah. he uh, falls into the record press. Um, and it like burns the side of his face and mutilates him, you know, like the fan yeah. of the opera. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that is like his, tr- and, uh, and he's I guess- presumed dead. And there's like a very yeah. creepy article, kind of like the eyes wide shut article they find about like the model who like got sacrificed and like, Oh, she just had a drug overdose. And it said like, mm-hmm. you know, like zany, like, like junkie songwriter, like meets grizzly end by falling into the East river and just kind of like yeah. goes over like, Oh, you know, like it, all the typical language you would hear from, you know, one of these like spooky, uh, kind of stories of like a, a fallen, uh, entertainment industry figure who died. But of course he doesn't die and then yes the very interesting thing about his what he yeah he takes on basically the persona of this phantom you know uh and like he wearing this very uh you know uh theatrical outfit of like you know including like a cape and everything and uh but the key aspect is this yeah the key aspect is this mask that he has which Mm -hmm. is an owl mask basically like it's a chrome sort of motorcycle helmet almost style but it almost has like, like mf clear... doom almost yeah like, but like also like a bird yeah more big bird shape it as has well. like a beak it looks like an owl you know it's an it's an owl motif really which mm-hmm. is because there's a lot of like there really is bird symbology through the entire movie yeah uh, death record you know, symbol is like a bird like with its yeah, feet dead sticking bird, up you know, dead swan uh uh-huh. phoenix is the name yep. of the the, uh, the girl character. The, the, yeah, yeah, that he yeah. wants to uh you know sing his music the one who can sing his music you know i mean swans obviously are symbolically significant like uh you know he's a terrible later in the swan an animal. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. right of course that's uh, one rapist, of the famous stories know. yeah mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah uh yeah zeus is the swan or the sort of solar divinities uh as as swans sometimes you see uh Mm -hmm. and the sort of uh, earlier earlier mythologies but they're definitely uh you know uh, the black swan you know uh, of our modern day uh paranoid uh, myth themes but yeah Mm -hmm. the uh uh it's, it's that's a very interesting aspect like subtle aspect of the movie is this uh the symbolism of the of the sort of avian uh esoteric symbolism especially the owl i think uh and this mask is very mm-hmm. very iconic very uh you know yeah very distinctive and and so um, like one of the things that happens which also i think is like a very big uh it contains a lot of commentary on like the the culture of the music industry is like swan like sneaks back up he also by the way just gonna mention one of the many times like 
something De Palma did first ended up being iconically associated with somebody who did it later. There's like a great like POV shot when he returns from like being disfigured and like wanders into the paradise where like the biker gang that protects Swan like sees him and are like, uh, and like you, you, you basically are like walking in just like the opening scene of Halloween with Michael Myers, that iconic thing, except he didn't have a steady cam yet because they didn't exist. But basically like the, the kind of the opening scene of Halloween is like an entire sequence in, I don't know if somebody else did a, a POV kind well, of thing. Like maybe, maybe Hitchcock Psycho. did it. Yeah, yeah, maybe Psycho. There is also like an almost exact yeah, kind of there's a, ode a direct to Psycho. Homage to Psycho. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, like he goes, I think, to try to like kill Swan, and Swan offers him, and Swan's like kind of expecting him, and is like, "I can build you back up," and offers him this like medieval-looking contract that he has yeah, to I think sign the with blood. Actually, is like a recreation <laughs> from like the silent film of Faust, because you know, oh, his okay. cantata is an adaptation of Faust. Uh, yes, you know, and. I I think that the uh, I think that that was one of the things that they got sued for is they originally used like footage from a bunch of old movies, including the the Universal Phantom of the Opera movie. Yes. Um, So I think that that actually it's a recreation of the contract from from Faust or, you know, in that sort of style. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Very ooky spooky. And so he signs him to a contract and then builds like a secret like cave studio filled with like cutting edge recording equipment and puts this like voice box on him. Another thing that I don't know if this jumped out at you, but yeah. the similarity between Darth Vader. Uh, between the Phantom yeah. and Darth Vader, exactly. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Did jump out yeah. at me very much. Because um, yes. he, he basically uh, his voice is like messed up for some reason. Yeah, and he wears right. this and like vocal he, box uh, around his neck. Yeah, well, uh, Swan gives him like a voice box basically that brings his voice back. Uh, so it's very much like Darth Vader. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean. He's like, more machine than I man. I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, it's a yeah. lot like Darth Vader really in the, like, in the prequels even, because I don't even know, like, how, in when the original Star Wars, how well-developed that idea was, that I yeah. guess it wasn't, but that it wasn't his real voice or something, but, uh, you know, yeah, like, uh, he has this sort of metallic voice where he just like you know says like phoenix you know it's like uh, yeah. <laughs> but there's a, um, i mean there's a great montage where like he's playing he's like hooked up to all these like wires and tubes in this like recording studio playing one of his like soulful you know cantata songs but like is like and then like yeah and like, swan is in the control room like turning knobs and stuff and getting it just, so like by the very end it's like back to like his perfect original voice and it sounds great but it just yeah it, it, it's a really heavy scene of just like the you know machines like being able to take over for and basically create this sound and like the corruption of the real and taking this artist's work and uh all that kind of, which I, again like i think de palma sees himself in this character there's another great moment where uh he comes in with like a suitcase and opens it up and it's just full of all these drugs and he's like time for breakfast yeah yeah, yeah, him, yeah like, right a bunch yeah. of drugs <laughs> you know yes. uh Right. Yeah, and, just, and like, so existing on drugs. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I think that's really uh, there, there's a lot in this movie that, uh, be, and then of course the big twist at the end. Uh, you know, yeah. the Palma well, doesn't shy away from it. Uh, this right. guy is under contract himself with the devil. Right. Yes. That's a that's yeah because that's one of the things where you know he says that's something he'll like. Obviously, like the Phantom isn't gonna like it because the Phantom's whole thing is that only phoenix can sing his music you know it's much yeah. like a phantom christine Daae type thing uh-huh. where uh you know it's all about phoenix and like oh, like he's gonna be outraged if anyone can sing things ever phoenix so the idea that he'll like beef so we don't know who he is but then later 
after basically uh the phantom uh so that all goes through swan has the beef like perform this song and the phantom breaks and he walls the phantom in like it he like bricks him in like he murders him kill him very edgar Allan poe um and uh yeah exactly yeah very like cask of amontadillo or whatever Uh i hope uh yeah and then there's of course a great scene where like then you know uh swan like seduces phoenix and is like you're going to be our new star he takes him back to the mansion and then of course he watches through like the ceiling window as like they have sex yeah. And of course it's a well, classic diploma before that you know beef goes out on stage and he like uh electrocutes him in like a horrifying fashion and then, oh, they, sort of right. usher, <laughs> then they sort of usher phoenix out like philbin i think pushes her out because he's like you know more people are gonna die unless you sing you know he killed beef so that yeah. you could sing you know and then she wins over the crowd and she becomes a star and yeah. she's immediately you know she's of course a sort of ingenue character but she's immediately caught up in uh the fame and like uh she feels like so grateful towards uh swan um yeah. and she just you know is like uh, you know i'll do anything you know you've given me all this fame and he's like i like your name like we won't have to change it you know like uh, <laughs> it's, uh of course yeah. he's sick of um, phoenix Ugh. yeah the phantom yeah. tries to like plead with her but like she won't listen to him and she doesn't like quite recognize him um and so then he mm-hmm. goes she, yeah, she goes back with him and like you know uh, yeah he has to watch like the skylight while they like they have sex uh and then like yeah this is a great like twist uh, line or you know it's very kind of it's not really so much a twist in a way because you almost sort of know but uh you know the phantom like confronts swan and like stabs him well he tries uh, to kill himself first and then swan right. shows up and says like hey, hey like you, no, you yeah, get you can't get out of my contract <laughs> right yeah he said like i own you know the contract basically gives him like complete control it's almost a comedic scene where like winslow is so naive and the contract is basically signing his yeah. soul away and like in perpetuity and swan's like well that's to protect you and stuff like that you know like, yeah. <laughs> little uh like bromides but uh-huh. yeah like uh, so he tries to like cut himself open and uh then when he sees Swan, you know, uh, he tries to stab him and, uh, or Swan says, yeah, like you can't kill yourself. Like, uh, uh, and, uh, if you try to kill me, you know, that, that gaping wound will open again, but the Phantom doesn't mm-hmm. care to stab him. And he has that great line where he says like, you know, I'm under contract too. Yeah. Uh, and because the, the wounds, you know, won't hurt him. And, uh, mm-hmm. eventually, you know, the Phantom discovers like, uh, an old, a tape, but this is, this is another thing we kind of mentioned. I think it was in our first Giants episode. We didn't really get into this in the Spirit Photography episode, but mm-hmm. uh, this is kind of a a, a a pastiche of the picture of Dorian Gray. Oh, yeah, um, it is. It is. Yeah, uh, which I think is related to, for those who have heard the Spirit Photography episode, um, this sort of craze in the 19th century, you know, that story, the idea of the picture that ages while the person doesn't, the mm-hmm. sort of talismanic power of images and, and image magic that uh you know this was uh very much uh, in the zeitgeist at that time uh yeah. you know this recurs in this movie except it's a videotape uh and it's him and it's like a yeah. reflection in a mirror of him in, sitting in a hot tub uh yeah allegedly, and his as a young man speaks to him yeah and basically yeah. says like i'm the devil you know uh and you'll look like me forever like and only this tape will age or something although it doesn't seem to have actually happened but uh, he has to watch it continually. That's what he has to do, which is again yeah. kind of this sort of like blowout type, like obsessive, uh, you know, uh, paranoid, like a uh, rewatching compulsion theme mm-hmm. that you see again. Like uh, that, that's what, sort of the thing is that he must rewatch it endlessly. Um, mm-hmm. But if it's ever destroyed, you know, he'll become vulnerable again. Uh, he'll, he'll revert to his true form, basically. Right. You know, yes. The, um, the, he'll turn into the picture of Dorian Gray. 
Right, yeah, he'll become, like, this disfigured monstrosity. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, because originally he's just going to kill himself because he's, he's literally going to slit his wrist because he's going to get old. Uh, and, yeah. Like, you know, the idea I mean, that he'll, like, ever... Even that idea... And like, who, yeah. who would have the resources to, like, film yourself in your bathtub in, like, 1952, which I feel like is what... it's a, It was, like, in the 50s when he allegedly made this, like, video... Uh, so it's like he must have already been kind of rich or come from a rich family or like had a lot of resources like what was this guy kind of involved with like he's he's so deeply like sinister and uh, and uh, seems to be like connected to something uh, yeah it it doesn't seem to imply that he kind of came out of the blue like he was an absolute nobody it's just that he was so pissed off that he was going to get older that he just wanted to die and so yeah, the devil um, offered him an opportunity to stay young forever and like conquer the music industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, but yeah, you know, I mean, DePaul. Uh, you know? yeah. yeah, he he comes down hard on like music industry explicitly controlled by Satan. Yeah, and it's a very actually, for, despite the movie being like this kind of like Charles Bushy like campy tone, like having this Charles Bushy campy tone, like the it's it's very chilling to see the like degeneration of the ingenue phoenix like under Mm -hmm. swan's care because he like drugs her up you know uh the phantom is horrified to discover like while spying on them of course you know like your standard diploma protagonist he uh (laughs) finds that like you know she's being asked to sign like a marriage contract basically that's a similar sort of soul contract you know and she's she's all drugged at that point like like, totally loopy and she's like "Ah," you know like f H like you know trying to like <laughs> spell her own name like uh it, yeah, yeah. And, uh, right it's a yeah that's a very very chilling scene but he does succeed in destroying this tape and uh that the phantom or not the phantom swan tries to go through with uh like their wedding as part of like this stolen opera of faust he's like incorporating it is so satan- it's like extinction that, yeah. level uh, extinction level event two in terms of like he yeah. has um he has what's his name the uh the the manager um mm-hmm. uh basically dress up as like a bishop so it's yeah. like this weird like satanic inversion of like a catholic mass but it's a concert at the paradise yeah and it's gonna be this whole thing which then, yeah uh, is and his plan by. is like yeah well his plan is even worse than that because it's not well, he does want to have this sort of wedding but his real plan is to literally have her shot like from afar in like that's a right. assassination type yeah. fashion <laughs> like in a set you know and he literally says yeah. like uh in a very like uh sort of you know a, a clear to my mind reference where he says like an assassination you know uh coast to coast tv like that's entertainment you know yep he did uh, say that he like, did say yeah. that yeah um, he's just assassinating celebrities for fun this guy yeah I mean, he, um, he got one and, once you get uh, one taste of it right yes yeah, so he's out of control know, this, this is gonna be the biggest thing at the at the paradise you know um <laughs> and uh yeah but it yeah ultimately it ends up being the phantom sort of like jumps the gunman and ends up shooting the philbin who's uh addresses the priest philbin that's this. right yeah yeah it's like make sure you shoot her as soon as she says till death do us part or something like that you know like um and yeah, yeah yeah such a sicko um, uh, another thing is another extinction level event aspect of it is that because uh i think at that point the phantom has destroyed the the magical tape yeah. he has become like this disfigured monster uh yeah. swan has you know another yeah. disfigured monster and he has to wear a mask too so everyone is like in this masquerade uh you know uh, thing. trying to like, reveal uh, their true horrific nature and yes. then what doesn't he like stab him to death with like a beak mask or something 
yeah, he like jumps him and yeah, like uh, like pummels him to death. Uh, and then his wound off. opens up and he like he yeah, slowly and then he kind dies. of dies. And then Phoenix realizes like that he was like a kindly man all along or whatever, you know, and like it's like oh, it's Winslow. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, pretty. Which on and that you know, of course, all of this is done in like a huge ballroom scene with like a bunch of different moving parts and simultaneous action and like hundreds of extras and during like a huge musical number. Yeah, the Which, fan like, is like uh, carried away, like uh, like yeah. I think when after Swan is like you know killed, he's like carried away like crowd surf style. They're both that's carried right, away, yeah. Which, yeah like, <laughs> uh, Very. Yeah. I mean, um, he's you know De Palma. Uh, he he maybe doesn't get as heavy handedly religious as uh, maybe a Scorsese or a Friedkin, but he's got those elements in there. Yeah, definitely think, in this uh, film for the sure. The dark and priest actually, aspect. Yeah, I was impressed actually where it, he discussed like his idea for like the alternate ending to Snake Eyes, where like a like there was like divine intervention. Oh like, yeah, a tsunami like came and like swept everything away at the end. Like that yeah, would have been amazing. That. And, yeah, it's disappointing that they didn't. It's the go only with thing. That. It's the only yeah, thing like, that could you know resolve so this fucked up world. Uh, yeah, just says, you know, oh, an we, act of God. With, yeah, exactly. We're dealing with so much corruption that the only thing that could solve it is if God comes down. And you know, uh, just almost like another nine eleven predictive programming without realizing it. You know, it's like he was feeling these vibes. Uh, Yeah, we'll talk about Snake Eyes in a little bit. Another one I watched a few months ago, which I really love and and has very like JFK elements uh, to it. Um, Yeah. When a young singer dies, to our shock and surprise, in a plane crash or a flashy sports car. He becomes quite well known, and the kindness he's shown has made more than one postmortem star. Well, you did it, Eddie. And though it's hard to applaud suicide, you gave all you could give so your sister could live. All America's choked up inside, man. We'll remember you. to like rewind a little bit and talk about like where did Brian De Palma come from and I guess like what influenced him to uh, utilize the styles that he did and uh, yeah all that stuff Um, because I think there's some interesting things going on in it uh, that are both obvious and in some cases less obvious Uh, but uh, I think it's also worth pointing out uh, De Palma was born on September 11th, 1940. <laughs> hmm. 
So I don't uh, know. Maybe, maybe his 9-11 experience is a little different uh, than other people's because it was his birthday. Yeah, it was his birthday. Damn. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I didn't think about it that way. Uh, yeah, I was thinking more like uh, the Crowleyan uh, alignment uh, or mm. whatever, but uh, yeah, the yeah, SKB what... angle. But yeah, it mm-hmm. must have been pretty brutal on 9-11 to be celebrating your birthday uh, and then... Yeah, yeah, yeah um, you're 70. And then for the rest birthday. of your life, your birthday is 9-11. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, was, that's how it's been for him. I guess by that uh, point in your life, it was born in 1940, you said? Yeah. yeah then so he's, I guess he's by that point. Kind of like know, Joe Biden, not stopped. technically even a boomer. He's like a proto-boomer. Hmm. Wow. Silent generation, um, which a, lo- a lot of the big people in the 70s kind of were, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Um, well, maybe and, that's uh, why he's so well known, because he's of the silent generation. You know, he's not. I guess so. Yeah, something interesting about his, uh, like, early oeuvre, like, uh, his, you know, uh, back catalog, is that he did, like, a, a film of Dionysus in 69. Yeah, yeah. I do want to talk about that real quick, but just to, like, lead up to, like, he was already making films by that point. Uh, it's, like, kind of his early project. I just want to say that, uh, like, how he ended up doing film in the first place real quick. His dad was an orthopedic surgeon uh, who was the son of Italian immigrants, Anthony De Palma. And I guess he grew up in Philadelphia, probably like an upper middle class background. Anyways, he eventually went, much like Thomas Pynchon, he ended up going to Columbia University and he studied physics. And I guess in high school, he started building computers and he won a regional science fair prize in high school for a project called An Analog Computer to Solve Differential Equations. And that was kind of like his background. It was a very technical, uh, scientific kind of background, but then he started to get like seduced by movies while he was in college. So then in 1962, he kind of pivoted away from his science uh, studies and started getting an MA in film study, uh, I believe in the theater department uh, at Sarah Lawrence College. So I feel like that's important to note worth mentioning because I think it immediately makes a little more sense why he would end up doing Dionysus in 69 is that he was mm-hmm. like hanging out in the Sarah Lawrence crowd. And I guess for those who yeah. don't know, he was also one of the first male students among a female population, which if you think about it, like kind of it really aligns a lot of stuff with like De Palma's like fascination with like women and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it was even a meme. Like if you went to college in like the East coast in like the Northeast, that there always was a meme that, you know, there were like basically no straight males. Yeah, Sarah that Lawrence like, is still mostly women for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, you know, uh, you know, this is like, uh, like something that would be said, uh, by dumb college kids but like if you were a straight guy at sarah lawrence it was like paradise because there were like there were like there were men but most of them were gay and so if you were a straight Mm -hmm. man you were an incredibly the gender balance was incredibly skewed in one direction and it seems like like so you know when you meet like a straight guy who went to sarah lawrence and then you see like De Palma, who did, I guess, fancy himself going back to high school as a bit of a ladies man. It, it kind of is like, oh, OK, I see kind of what drew you there of all places uh, a little bit. Um, but at the same time, like the other thing people know about Sarah Lawrence is that it's like kind of like an archetypal, like lib feminist, uh, like woke college. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also like known for being like I think for having a good arts program uh, mm-hmm. in, in theater. 
uh, mm-hmm. and things like that. So it, you know, would make some sense. Yeah, and I, New York I, City, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I, I guess they had some real heavy hitting film uh, drama teachers and like filmmaking teachers as well there, which I believe included uh, Wilfred Leach, the Maisels brothers, like we said, sus, uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, Jean Luc Godard, Andy Warhol, and Alfred Hitchcock. Um, I mean, those were all like big influences on him. I believe. I think many, maybe all of them were like visiting lecturers at some point at Sarah Lawrence. Yeah, I didn't make the connection between Wilfred Leach and Winslow Leach until just now, but oh yeah, neither did I. Neither did I. Um, But then, okay, so then, like, he started making films as a grad student uh, at Sarah Lawrence, like, and the first one starred like a young Robert De Niro. Uh, in the wedding party and then greetings and hi mom and then I guess like he 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 eventually went back to New York and kind of hung out in the Greenwich Village filmmaking scene and started like he also much like George Lucas uh, made a bunch of small like documentary films for the NAACP and the Treasury Department and also for IBM one of his first shorts was in 1961 was called 660124 the story of an IBM card so we're getting strong kind of like weird like pension kind of a uh, cybernetics mil- like I don't know doing do- like uh, George Lucas also did government documentaries in like around this time as well and then ended up working for the Maisels brothers who I guess taught Brian De Palma in New York and then they became friends later on so you see like a, a discrete level of people influencing all these people um and I guess he made like a MoMA documentary called The Responsive Eye. And then, sorry for that detour, in 1969, he kind of makes something that is kind of like an aesthetic breakthrough for him in some ways. And is also like a very 1969 New York uh, avant-garde kind of thing, right? Yeah. This Do you want to talk kind about of like that? A famous, yeah, it's like a pretty famous like performance like theater history thing like the guy who directed this play Dynasty 69 Richard Schechner is like known as the father of like academic performance studies which is Mm -hmm. like very like his collaboration with Victor Turner who's an anthropologist like the whole idea of like rites of passage like uh social drama like a lot of what contemporary like uh people I think especially like the popular culture like people out uh, outside of like the academic world like think about in terms of like uh rituals and the uh you know uh, the sort of transcultural power of of rituals and the, the way they function in society and that type of stuff you know uh comes out of the like schechner turner uh mm-hmm. lab and the sort of anthropological ideas around uh performance that that they generated i think are are pretty influential like uh you Hmm. know the they were kind of like a new version of like the cambridge ritualists who made a pretty big splash like uh in the early uh 20th century uh Hmm. you know it uh like with the whole like dying and and being you know the, the dying god and the the uh the things like that the the year king and stuff uh mm-hmm. you know victor turner's like the you know the rites of passage uh was like a, a big thing that that he did uh, uh you know what really uh one of our go-to words that we're often using uh liminal mm-hmm. is like really a victor turner thing uh oh, okay. he was the one who like really uh proposed and pro- like propounded 
the idea of liminality as a feature uh, in like social ritual and that type of thing um and he was a very close collaborator with the director of this play richard schechner and you can see with the sort of themes of the play uh the undercurrent of their sort of uh, those two people's mutual uh interests in this in this type of uh domain so it's a very interesting thing to have uh, filmed uh this play basically is like kind of an adaptation of the Bacchae, you know, the play by Euripides uh-huh. that's pretty famous. People know it, I, I think, maybe, but it's, uh, you know, sort of Dionysus versus Pentheus uh, and uh, Pentheus trying to assert these kind of, uh, you know, his control over the, of the women is maybe often how it's read. I mean, there's multiple readings mm. of it. Of course, like an ancient Greek play, we can uh, talk about it maybe uh, some other time, like the Euripidean. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, heard of this, it. But I, I, I am yes. not a, uh, an expert by any means. But yeah, yeah. but um, I mean, it, it is a very much like a, a, a Bacchanalia uh, in terms of the, um, the racy well, yeah, the kind plot. of like yeah like wine orgy kind of content of it uh and... yeah the right the euripides play definitely i mean yeah the bacchae they are you know the class they their revels are the archetypal bacchanalia you know uh they're like these uh women who they are like kind of driven mad by their revels with uh dionysus and you know they become sort of uncontrollable and and violent uh you know uh people obviously have like certain feminist readings of of the bacchae but you know mm-hmm. uh i kind of like you know uh you don't want to uh, uh step on any or rain anybody's parade but i think that a lot of these ancient greek plays are like you know pretty uh misogynistic i mean lately mm-hmm. people have kind of started to propose that i think almost kind of like out of a sort of wishful thinking that like there were women in the audience at these plays but i actually don't necessarily think that they were allowed um it's my okay. personal opinion but i could mm, be wrong okay. uh so you know it's like mostly for a well, male audience but i digress a bit that would be um, relevant that would be relevant because this dionysus in 69 kind of involved like breaking the fourth wall and a certain amount of interactivity with the audience right yeah, for sure. Well, this is all about, like, Richard Schechner's idea of, like, environmental theater, you know, a very yes. site-specific type of uh, interactive uh, theater uh, that would be, you know, uh, challenging, very, very, as you said, avant-garde, uh, challenging traditional norms of, uh, you know, this sort of uh, spectator-performer uh, divide. Actually, you know, I have here uh, Richard Schechner's book, Performance Theory, uh, where mm-hmm. he talks uh, quite a bit about uh, Dionysus in 69, and he talks about some of the things uh, that uh, happen, you know. He says, you know, he's comparing this to, like, ancient rituals and stuff. Uh, he says, uh, William Finley, uh, playing Dionysus in Dionysus in 69, had to start his performance each night by emerging naked amid an audience of 200 and saying, Good evening, my name is William Finley, and I am a god. Only mm. by finding, releasing, and showing his deepest impulses of fear, hilarity, fraud, and humiliation could he begin to cope with the actuality of his preposterous situation. Other, like, sort of notorious thing about this play is they used attack therapy, like, uh, to sort of get the, you know, this is really? sort of in the, yeah, I don't know if you know anything about Grotowski, uh, but a lot of his stuff was all about kind of, like, ex- exhausting au- actors to, like, their physical limits, and, uh, oh, the idea, like, wow. the whole actor, yeah. That um, is really intriguing, because that shows up in, uh, Body Double. There's, uh, like, a, a big scene there where the main character is being, like, basically screamed at and broken down and kind of put through the, you basically, it, it, it looks like 
you're you can't even tell it looks like it could be an est session or an acting class basically like the way it plays out and it's like very it's coded by de palma as like very psychologically abusive and kind of fucked up and like invasive and um Mm -hmm. and that also like ties in with all kinds of like encounter therapy and stuff like that that was just floating around california in like the 60s and 70s and yeah like est and like uh synanon and groups like that and even i don't know like uh like quasi maoist communes and stuff that were set it up right around right. 69 70 where they, it was like non-hierarchical leadership but you had to do like struggle sessions and then it was yeah. a lot of, like fucked mm-hmm. up dynamics like you know or Lyndon larouche like trying to break down the little me and like destroy the you know subjectivity right. of the bourgeois worker etc uh-huh. you starting to see yeah uh, and, and and it's actually yeah i'm looking here like uh it, it is noted on attack therapy a controversial group synanon used a form of attack therapy um it was that was oh yeah that was the synanon confrontation game and i guess it uh yeah verbal attack therapy i guess in the dictionary of american penology williams i guess this author wrote that attack therapy was actually first developed in the synanon group and it was called simply the game within the group uh described by yeah. a former participant as bru- as quote brutal and bordering upon sadism also uh the scared straight remember that all those yes. shows and stuff that they were right. also compared this to basically attack therapy as well so i guess that's a very vivid uh example for anybody um who's maybe like wondering but it's vi- that's it's very inherently kind of coercive and culty and um so okay so that was a part of basically yeah the sort of uh rehearsal process like uh you know it was uh pretty uh brutal like uh you know they would uh like rehearse for six days a week six hours a day you know doing these intense things uh including attack therapy you know this uh very uh, intense you can like uh look at some of the uh i think you know you can you can use interviews and you can also you know i think there might actually be some recordings of their rehearsals at least you know obviously you can watch the palmas movie of the actual play uh, i, I went looking it, for it yeah. it's it's hosted on some nyu website but it's using some old kind of flash browser that my computer no longer <laughs> recognizes yeah. so i i've had trouble getting like a good segment of it to like watch but uh, the little yeah. bits of it that are in the documentary are very evocate i mean it's like all these kind of like writhing bodies and of course it's like the first time that he really employs the use of his split screen technique which is funny i feel like it's one of those things that uh maybe later a lot of like critics have attacked him for just being like an empty stylistic trick but he Mm -hmm. conceives of it he repeatedly describes it as like a very cerebral intellectual very intellectualized uh technique to like employ in his film and actually he did have to like dial it back in movies like carrie where like Mm -hmm. in the climactic scene it was like all split screen initially because he just wanted to show you know like the dichotomy between the two different things or the interplay or like the suspense building it really is kind of i i kind of would i don't know it could be used dumbly in a lot of people's hands but i kind of it's one of those things that really jumps out as like that's a de palma thing that he's repped really hard and nobody else has really kind of gone on um except maybe like the 24 tv show you know done it in like a tacky way but uh i feel like he he takes the use of that very seriously and this is like the first appearance of it right because he wanted to get the audience kind of reaction and the performer simultaneously right yeah and this is like theater in the round so it's a very it's very like immersive type of thing you know Mm -hmm. uh so having the different uh angles on it and not like having one focus of the action 
uh, would be sort of very key to, to capture it. So yeah, he'd be showing the same moment of the production uh, from you know different parts. So yeah, it would be uh, a natural fit for, for trying to capture something like this. There's some other uh, interesting kind of quotes from uh, from Schechner about this to kind of give a, ca- uh, a sense of it. Obviously, you know, there was the mentioning of the sort of nudity, uh, the radical nudity mm-hmm. there. In Dionysus in 69, there is a scene about halfway through that starts when Dionysus offers Pentheus any woman in this room. Pentheus says he can have his pick without Dionysus' help. Okay, says Dionysus, try it yourself. Pentheus is left alone in the center of the room. Almost every night, some woman comes to him and offers help. The scene plays privately between them and ends with the woman rejecting Pentheus, or the actor playing Pentheus, and going back to her place. The performance resumes, and Pentheus, defeated, is sacrificed. Once it did not happen this way. In the words of William Shepard, who played Pentheus, One time the sequence was completed was when Catherine Turner, not to be confused with Kathleen Turner, so I don't know, Mm -hmm. but just some person, came out into the room. The confrontation between us was irrational. Her concern for me was not based on the play, my playing a role, whether or not I was going to die or any of that. What happened was that I recognized in one moment that the emotional energy Catherine was spending on me literally lifted me out of the play as though someone had grabbed me by the hair and pulled me up to the ceiling. I looked around and saw the garage, which is their performance space, and mm-hmm. the other actors, and I said, it finally happened. The play fell away like shackles being struck from my hands. The way the play is set up, Pentheus is trapped inside its structure. But on that night, it all seemed to fall away, and I walked out the door. Joan McIntosh was playing Dionysus that night. Her reactions were different. Bill got up and left the theater with the woman. I announced that the play was over. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight for the first time since the play has been running, Pentheus, a man, has won over Dionysus, the god. The play is over. Cheers and cries and celebrations. I felt betrayed. I was hurt and angry at Shepard. I learned something corny but true, that if you invest all of yourself in the work, the risks are very great. It says, uh, on only one other occasion was the performance similarly torn from its rehearsed path. But many times people came to the play challenging performers participating in the death ritual where Pentheus is killed. Some of this participation was naive, but much of it came from people who had seen Dionysus in 69 more than once. In mm-hmm. June in 1968, Shepard was kidnapped by five students from Queens College who planned to stop the quote-unquote killing of Pentheus and spent the afternoon working out their strategy. Many of the performers felt that their play should not stop because Pentheus was not genuinely rescued. I agreed and asked for a substitute Pentheus from the audience. A young man of 17 volunteered. He did very well. He had seen the play five times and knew what was expected of him. So uh, wow. you can kind of see like what this uh, was like. You know, it's something that would make people like a, it's very like un- intense, uncomfortable, like artistic milieu for like yeah. people like now, you know, for your average person, like would not want to be hanging out like among the like cast <laughs> and crew of Dynasty 69. Like they would be like put off because of yeah. like their intensity, their actorliness, uh, for lack I of mean, a better the, word. You know? you know, you definitely yeah. know that there's a certain cultiness that can kind of like uh, develop around either like a theater company or anyone a production. who's been around like theater people knows what i'm talking about yes like, exactly uh, for any extended yeah. period of time like knows <laughs> what i'm talking about like you know uh people are uncomfortable mm-hmm. around theater people in general like mm-hmm. so yeah and this was uh, intended to recreate that like culty emotional vibe of the play you know and they like would literally have these sort of like struggle sessions as you said like on uh-huh. stage as part of the the production you know so uh yeah yeah, um, yeah, a lot of um, volatile things being experimented with there in the artistic yeah. sphere that were 
uh, in other spheres, right. in other and spheres key to too. it is like the sort of yeah the key to it is like yes playing with the sort of fourth wall aspect you know like uh schechner writes in a very cliche thing for people who are into this material but uh he says like macintosh does not quote play dionysus neither quote are they the characters during rehearsals the performer searches his personal experience and associations selects those elements which reveal him and also make an autonomous narrative and or action structure strips away irrelevancies and cop-outs hones what remains until everything is necessary and sufficient what results is a double structure not unlike that of the uh, you know have hey he's talking about some say, comparing his dumb play to like a someone's sacred ritual in the classic schechner <laughs> manner but anyway uh you know but it, first is the narrative and or action structure of dionysus 69 the second is the vulnerability and openness of the performer each performance he risks freshly not only his dignity and craft but his life in process decisions made and actions done during performance may change the performer's life the performance is a set of exchanges between the performer and the action and of course, among all performers and between them and the audience. Theatrical reality is instantaneous, not an illustration of life, but something linked to life only by analogy. And that's a Grotowski quote, uh, that last bit. Uh, mm. Someone, yeah, who, as we said, was very into the sort of intense, uh, you know, uh, pre- uh, preparation for, for performance and the, the, the intense uh, sort of style of actor pedagogy or, and of theater in general. But was he based uh, in know, the U.S.? Theater. Uh, he was based in the U.S. for certain times. You know, he was he was Polish. Uh, okay, okay. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they they, they definitely had uh, their intense schools of uh, acting as well. Anybody who's seen the yeah, Decalogue. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, he's one of like, the biggest, most influential like theater directors probably of like the 20th century. Um, mm. So yeah, he definitely left his mark, but. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, this whole aspect of like the ritual theater, the poor theater, you know, the yeah. holy theater. Uh, yeah, the holy it, theater, yeah, and, and even his, yeah, kind of the Phantom yeah. of the Paradise, like you know, taking place yeah. like really in a even though it's like a concert venue, it feels like you know an opera hall, opera house, or like a, an old theater. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, definitely, it does feel like it does definitely capture that sense of being like kind of like a concert film or a performance film. You know, it does have that sort of verite vibe to it. And it also has that like panoramic feeling, you know, like where the, the scenes of performance are filmed, you do get a very organic and well-realized uh, sense of the interplay between performer and audience. Mm-hmm. And even that scene you mentioned where Swan is kind of spinning around, uh, you know, to sort of see his... The different uh, the, the sort of different, yeah, incarnations of the, the cantata, like uh, the different musical styles, the sort of trying them out, uh, mm-hmm. you know, moving through them, it still has that same kind of... Uh, you know, uh, telescopic or sort of uh, effects, this, the same kind of like a re- revolving theater in the round type feeling. So yeah, that's a very interesting, little appreciated aspect of, of De Palma's background. Like uh, after making, you know, like greetings, 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 or like whatever, you know, like uh, <laughs> th- that, uh, you know. Well, even this, even this that, it's like worth, yeah. it's worth mentioning that those uh, first few movies he did with uh, Robert De Niro definitely had a, a political bent to them. And mm-hmm. like he... Uh, I guess uh, even described by some as a uh, as a left a left revolutionary bent uh, to uh, some of these uh, let's see a leftist revolutionary viewpoint. 
I don't know who said that. But basically also, I guess he did state his intention around that time to become the American Godard. And I guess he, he was also... <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, he was really influenced by the movie uh, A Weekend by Godard, which uh, I remember watching that in college. And like that is a, that is a wild movie. And it's like... It's like a psychedelic, like Maoist uh, satire. I don't even know what it is. Like, but it's it's crazy, and it has some like amazing, really wild, like long tracking shots. Like, I don't know if you remember ever seeing it. Weekend. Uh, no, I haven't. It involves like Maoist cannibal revolutionaries and like you know bourgeois marriage, uh, and I think it came out in '69. Yeah, it's a guitar uh, movie. It's like when he really yeah. starts going off and both like a more political and a like uh, Brechtian like deconstructing genre direction, like going very meta, um, and uh, you know pushing against those limits. But yeah, I mean the other movies, uh, I think Greetings is where Robert De Niro gets like a draft notice, and the whole movie is him going around with like his buddy in New York and like having hijinks trying to come up with different ways to like basically get out of the draft and yeah. I think that has like a number of monologues like basically shit talking the Vietnam War there's another it might have been Hi Mom from that era where there's like a monologue in there of a guy like rant like holding up pictures of like Dealey Plaza and being like you see there behind the grassy knoll there's a guy with a 7.62 Russian <laughs> rifle at the exact moment and like uh, uh, in the documentary De Palma commented, like, yeah, like, I can, like, insert, like, political things into my movies by having characters basically rant about them. Like, not really the main character. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting observation that, like, that um, actually is often more effective than, like, turning your, like, kind of main characters into a PSA. Like, having, you know, uh, having it kind of in the background. But, like, I don't know. I think that it definitely indicated that he had, uh, unlike so many of the Laurel Canyon set, he had a certain sense of, like, politics um, Mm -hmm. that was, like, generally uh, leftist. Even though I think that got kind of sublimated once you get more into the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, it did eventually kind of come back. And, yeah, when we talk about redacted uh it got him in a lot of trouble but it's interesting to see him come out of the gate kind of with uh something at least in that 70s sense of like more power critical and a little more cynical about like Mm -hmm. the american american culture and the american system and all of these things and uh yeah i mean i guess like george lucas was like the rebels were the Viet Cong, you know so i guess they all were kind of like flirting with a lot of these ideas in the 70s but uh Mm -hmm. um in a way they were all their whole clique of people were at least like casually more left wing than any of the music people were mm-hmm. yes. which is kind of interesting but uh, not right. to say they yeah. were uh you know uh eisenstein or anything but uh yeah greetings definitely is you know uh it's anti-war for sure um mm-hmm. you know so that's yeah yeah but yeah. but then you know he he also like in the 70s i think a lot of these themes that he's kind of obsessed with like uh like kind of voyeurism and also uh sinister forces afoot uh he starts to really link into like uh, he fixes in on like esp and telepathy in a couple projects that he does and which one of course which like we i don't think we'll really talk about is like carrie obviously his big breakthrough hit um right a lot of people have seen it i've seen i saw it Mm -hmm. you know a while ago uh i think i'd probably enjoy watching it again but i feel like that that's like well-trod territory uh so instead we watched the one that came after carrie 
which uh, sounded like it had a more subliminal jihad uh, kind of bent to it, which was the Fury. Yeah, I would say that it did in that it was, yeah, I mean, this had, like, sort of a government conspiracy angle that Carrie doesn't have. Uh, Mm -hmm. Carrie is, you know, uh, there's definitely similarities between the two films, and I think that, yeah, I think that the Palma got the Fury because of Carrie. Yeah. Uh, Similar concepts, you know, in terms of the telepathy angle. Um, And both, like, a a telepathic young girl at sort of the center of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so and John yeah. Cassavetes as a sinister uh, CIA agent who is like running an institute for like psychic spy soldiers, right? Basically, um, yeah. The both of those though, I think it's interesting that I mean he was very negative about the Fury in the t- uh, 2016 documentary like retrospective that he did, which was you know a bit surprising. That was actually his uh his mention of Friedkin came at that point where uh you know he was upset about having to uh, do a car chase because basically he didn't have a hand in writing the script at all, so he had oh, to write okay. the script based on sort of the I think I think it was the the author of the original novel The Fury. Yes. Um, uh, you know that yeah. uh that uh, wrote uh the John Ferris, but, yeah. Yeah, and he was upset, you know, just because he had to, like, film someone else's ideas. You know, he thought he did a good job in, like, certain scenes, but he was very upset about having to do a car chase because he said, like, yeah. you can't do a car chase after the French Connection. You know, there's a subway, there's a car on the bottom, you know, it's the, he's kind of, it's the best idea in the world. Yeah. Um, you know. <laughs> he really loved it. Um, yeah. It's like, I don't know. Uh, at times he does have that kind of, like, uh, boyish Michael Bay enthusiasm just for, like, the the complexity of like a huge set piece he just loves it he's like yeah. a little kid with like his little trains and stuff yeah but, although it's uh, interesting that his response to that was like not to try to imitate it or to top it but like that he just hates car chase scenes which i do understand because i really don't like car chase scenes generally yeah, uh but either. yeah i like that sort of sentiment that yeah like uh the projection just had the ultimate car chase scene and now like no one should ever do a car chase ever again like uh <laughs> yeah yeah just give um, up on it i'm, I'm i mean yeah. that, that, that's that's something that i kind of like about him is that like he he he's definitely eager to imitate things from classic films that he feels like are like worth kind of like resurrecting i mean everything from like yeah. the shower scene in psycho to the uh the carriage bouncing down the stairs in the untouchables which is directly yeah, lifted right. from that the was, battleship uh, potemkin there was also something like that in uh was it in was it in phantom of the paradise i think so there was like a or was it in something else uh i feel like he did that twice where you had like a i think it might have been like, in blowout oh yeah no it, it was the fury it was the fury oh okay okay carriage in peril uh, oh okay you know, okay like, uh, yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did the Battleship Potemkin illusion and a couple the, times. Yeah. The the um the the finale of the Fury, that great scene where just like out of nowhere it cuts to like a Kirk Douglas like pointing a revolver at the camera, like lurking in a cab, and then like uh just like the that's where you start to see him really start to like build up to like I'm gonna do this whole like ultra slow motion thing with like four or five different characters like doing different stuff and it's gonna have this like sweeping melodramatic score and um actually this had a john williams score which he said was one of his favorite things about it it is pretty good but he he really became like a he starts to embrace like this real melodrama and the kind of sweeping like old hollywood symphony to kind of go along with it Mm -hmm. which i feel like that that another like very uh 
loud signature of like all of his movies is uh, that kind of like a romantic uh, kind of I don't know almost Another like an art thing deco. That I thought, yeah, actually, you know, now that I think about it, uh, I didn't make this connection before with sort of the sort of revolving camera in um, in uh, Phantom of the Paradise, but uh, it does also have like one of the things that really stood out to me about the Fury uh is the theme of spinning and revolution um you know like literal mm. revolution uh oh, in terms of like, like the know, train spin. scene in the beginning with the the mm-hmm. woman from the yes. like sri foundation getting the the teenage girl to basically the sort of make whirly, the, the, the tilt a world type whirly gig you know uh uh ride amusement park ride that oh my god uh, that was what, wasn't that a, i didn't i tell you that wasn't that a great yeah. sequence <laughs> Where, it's a good sequence yeah 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 and then like the final you know the, it kind of does something again in the final scene where he sort of tortures his handler psychically and like spin you know he keeps going like spin spin like, oh yeah turn, yeah turn. he like, spins you know, her to death yeah yeah, yeah and there's also yeah. a very kind um, of toxic relationship with that where basically like the adult handlers like there's this woman who's probably like in her mid to late 30s that uh they've kidnapped kirk douglas's son who is like an ex-cia agent they kidnap his son in israel and then she starts like seducing him and he's like i don't know like a 16 year old boy or whatever and she starts like seducing him and like having sex with him uh in order to kind of like get like emotional more emotional control over his psychic abilities but then he starts to like it, it it's a very i don't know the way he portrays it it's like oh like it, it's such a toxic relationship that they have that yeah. then he gets like really jealous and angry and then that's yeah, when like he, he sees like replace him with like this girl who's kind of his psychic twin uh yes like, yeah replace me. you know he like yeah he they really drove him insane like at the uh-huh. beginning he seems like a pretty well-adjusted son of like admittedly like kirk douglas who's like a sus like ex-CIA operative uh yeah. but yeah they just completely broke his mind uh it's quite horrifying uh yeah they kind yeah. of drive him insane there's really kind of like a like weird yeah almost like project monarch kind of vibes of like they want to like break yeah. these people down and then of course at the end when they like get the girl John Cassavetti starts to kind of in- hint that he's going to do the exact same thing with her he's going to start sleeping with her and yeah. then uh, there, then there comes the finale, which I'll just say that I don't understand why everybody freaks out about scanners and thinks that it was so groundbreaking uh, having psychic characters blow people's heads up because um, De Palma kind of did it first. Mm, yeah, well, you know, I don't know what's up with that. Watch. I haven't seen the scanners in a little while. I'd be curious to rewatch it. I remember, you know, you made this argument very forcefully to me that uh, scanners was just heavily derivative of of the fury uh but i don't know yeah I, in a lot of ways i like that part it was a good and you know it was a good exciting ending it was spectacular when uh, that guy blew up because he doesn't just yep. his head doesn't just blow up his whole body blows up his whole body um, blows up it's bigger yeah, than it's uh, bigger than uh than yeah in scanners scanners right, felt like yes. a canadian like public access kind of like like knockoff of like this movie which had like a bigger budget and more uh you know more of those like very uh complex and sophisticated like set pieces in it and stuff and maybe might have been the first movie where he got the steady cam which of course he would become obsessed with for good reason yeah steady cams are I'd cool i'd be interested to but... revisit scanners though because i i don't know yeah my my memory at least of scanners uh you know it might be colored a bit by like the palma's own sort of like disinterest in the movie although i think that there you know i'd be interested to like learn more about john ferris the guy who um 
you know, uh, had written the the book, uh, uh, sort of like a Southern Gothic novelist, I guess. Uh, yeah, who, yeah. Uh, you know, I would been, be well, cause prolific. Yeah. I mean, this is basically like this is where the psychic stuff is like seeping into popular culture in the late seventies. Yeah, you know? this is like Yuri but, Geller like, neither era. Of those projects. There are both things that were like kind of passed to him. You know, they were, he was offered them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he was like, yeah, I'll do this. Uh, you know, so but, yeah, but then, like, yeah, that, that is true. Actually. It's like here, you, you're the man to do this. And then, but then it's interesting because then he wanted to, I think after this movie, I think he, he almost wanted to make like a psychic trilogy because he wanted to, to adapt that novel, the demolished man. And I guess he worked for it like a year and a half, two years. And, I guess it just kind of fell apart and he wasn't able to put it together, but that the subject of that kind of goes even deeper. It sounds a little almost like Philip K. Dick, even though it was, it was Alfred Bester who wrote it. Um, but it was basically about like, it's a police procedural in the future where telepathy is common. Um, and like in the 24th century telepaths called espers or peep or peepers, there you go. Um, peeping toms uh, yeah, like, are integrated yes. into all levels of society. They're classed according to their abilities. All espers can telepathically communicate amongst themselves, and the more powerful espers can overwhelm their juniors. Telepathic ability is innate and inheritable, but can remain latent and undetected in untrained persons. Once recognized, natural aptitude can be developed through instruction and exercise. There is a guild to improve espers' telepathic skills, to set and enforce ethical conduct guidelines, and to increase the esper population through intermarriage. Some latent telepaths are discovered or where their abilities but uh, but submit refuse to submit to guild rule um and so uh yeah it's like there's like a murder plot or something that involves like hiring like a pi esper yeah it actually to, does uh, sound very similar in plot to the alfred bester book that i read and admired a lot uh when i was much younger uh the star is my destination uh which mm. is kind of similar but more uh, focused on teleportation instead of telepathy uh, and okay. it's kind of about yeah like a society a society transformed by uh, the discovery of this like a, a, a capability called jaunting they the jaunt hmm. okay. uh, you know which is like you basically can like move yourself uh, vast distances and yeah there's all sorts of interesting details like I remember that like rich people have come to like ensconce themselves in these vast mazes uh, so that people can't infiltrate with teleportation and sort of steal, uh, their wealth <laughs> and, and things wow. like, you know, uh, yeah. And it's similar where the main character is someone who, uh, you know, is a, a kind of in a penal colony, uh, mm. or he's stranded. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely like a, sort of a criminal, like on the run. Uh, he's stranded on an asteroid for a while, like in this weird kind of, uh, society. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, wow. it's interesting. Yeah. And he yeah. like masters his ability to teleport through space which like no one else can do uh yeah that's an interesting damn uh, bug yeah so yeah he, I, I just um, uh i i wanted to read like the this uh, these two lines right here of like the plot summary of the demolished man because there's uh some key words here that uh i think everybody will find interesting um i guess the setup of it is that ben reich uh, that's right, R-E-I-C-H, uh, is the paranoid, impetuous owner of Monarch Utilities and Resources, a commercial right. cartel that the Reich family has possessed for generations. Monarch Utilities and Resources is in danger of bankruptcy because of its chief rival, the de Courtney cartel, headed by the older Cray de Courtney. Reich suffers recurring nightmares in which a man with no face persecutes him. So, I mean, right there, like, uh, okay, Monarch Utilities, the Reich family. Uh, this is written in the 50s, so, I mean, 
before uh, actually yeah published the same year mk ultra started but uh so i don't know you know monarch could just be a totally uh coincidental thing but nonetheless uh kind of interesting but you know, he didn't I get to he didn't get to make that he, one yeah this is kind of a uh digression but i did notice that uh in the godzilla the new uh, godzilla universe of movies like the uh organization that is like in charge of like keeping tabs on godzilla is called monarch uh really? like yeah a bit oh odd God. Here um, we go. you know yeah. i guess that's a it's a good name for like a sort of uh secret organization but i don't know they're rubbing our noses in a folk. Yeah, they are. Uh, Revelation of the method. Carburetors, man. That's what life is all about. That's what life is all about. That's what life is all about. That's what I was not myself last night. So the globalists wouldn't let him make the demolished man. No, uh, they wouldn't. Uh, too much yeah, revel- I, revelation going on there, and yeah, I wasn't as like you know I'm not as passionate about like the Palma uh, as like a, an artist like a, as you are, but I did. My brain started to like you know maybe as we get into like uh, redacted and stuff like uh, we can talk about this a little bit more, but like uh, I did so- sort of think you know like that. Uh, maybe just like from doing a lot of uh, Swamilla Jihad, you know, having my sensitivities honed to uh-huh. uh, this type of thing, I, I did kind of wonder, you know, if uh, if he was like set up in some way, like by mission to Mars, you know, was he <laughs> was he set up to fail? Because like, yeah. uh, you know, like was mission you to Mars wonder. really that much worse than like the stuff that gets like praised and just like you know like it's sloppily like you know devoured now. 
You know, was it really very that good much question? Worse? I I wish like, I think I, I I'm I plan on watching. It. I don't think I've actually ever really seen it. I've seen like little parts of it, and I no, remember it being really panned when it came out. Uh, but I think yeah, that's a good point. I don't point. doubt that like, Mission to Mars is bad. I mean, I did see it when I was like in sixth grade. Uh, you know, like when it came out and like in theaters. I remember it being pretty bad, like and like yeah. stupid. Uh, yeah. but. I d- and I remember even as like a six year old, like there was a scene where like some dude was just like living on Mars and like growing like plants and like somehow he was able to just like walk around like you know without any kind of space. I remember that being a plot. Yeah, because they unlock some and ancient even- alien temple. Uh, yeah, and that it's happened like, later in the movie, but like even like yeah. before even the aliens necessarily came into it, like. I remember, I feel like he was, like, in a greenhouse. I felt like it wasn't, like, vacuum sealed. I felt like even as, like, a 12-year-old or whatever, I felt, like, a little bit, like, is this, like, realistic that he could walk around on Mars, like, you know, just in this greenhouse chilling, like, because he has a couple of, like, potted plants that are making oxygen, like... I don't know. Maybe I'm misremembering like how no, I mean, it was, but it seems like a little yeah, bit wacky. But it, it, anyway, and I mean, like that was something yeah. where he was brought on like after the whole script was written, after the mm-hmm. old direction director, like I think it was Gore Verbinski, like left, oh, yeah, you yeah. know. Yeah. But then it was like widely panned, you know. And I looked into a little bit of like uh, retrospectives on it, like uh, that people have done. You know, like uh-huh. 10 years later, looking back at Mission to Mars. And now everyone's like, well, you know, it wasn't as bad as everyone said. You know, there are some good sequences. Like, I do remember, even, like, as a kid, I do remember the, like, the sequence where uh, there's, like, all these tornadoes and vortexes that, like, erupt mm-hmm. on Mars and, like, attack everybody, you know. Uh, that was, like, compelling. And people have pointed to that as being a good part of the movie. And it's just like, you know, is this as bad as Doctor Strange? Like, you know, like well, is it for really, sure, for sure. You know, I would trade. Like, I would trade a bu- like the wackiest De Palma misses. You know, I would trade that world for the one we have today, where everything is like a middling, like completely uninspired, but like competently made spectacle that has no variation to it. Nothing surprises you. I'm sure if I watch Mission to Mars, I'm going to be surprised by a few things <laughs> like, you know, yeah. and I think uh, there's going to be some kind of wild ideas I, going on. You know in what? It. I think the sure visuals will be good. Like, I'm not sure, I guess, but I have a strong feeling that Mission to Mars is better than, like, you know, 99% of, like, Marvel movies, like, really. You know, like, yeah. just in terms of, like, offering something fresh. Like, I mean, Serenity... Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Best movie of is, I'd rather watch that than, yeah, like, you know, uh... most... So, it's like... Was Mission yeah, to Mars really... Yeah, I mean, it, it was, like, basically, like, based on a Disney ride. It was, like, Pirates of the Caribbean, like, 1.0. So, like, yeah. not gave it too much credit, but... I don't know. I kind of was thinking, like, was he, like, set up to fail... And then everyone, like, you know, uh, cir- you know, the shark started circling, you know, like, let's get him. Uh, well, you know, over, it's over interesting Mars, that, that you know? Mission to Mars was written by the brothers who wrote the Predator movie. And we all know from Dr. Stephen Greer that that was just right, propaganda true. to yes, the E.T.'s threatening. The so yes, this, he wow. just got roped into another you propaganda are one ugly job. motherfucker, the ultimate yeah. line. Yes. Uh, like wow. A, a and you know what? Mission Nazi to Mars telling you, uh, is a movie about benevolent aliens that seeded the Earth. And it's terrible, and uh, everyone it hates failed. it. 
and it's been de- uh, it discredits wow. the whole idea. Hollywood no. doesn't want Hollywood doesn't. No. Yeah, people don't no. want to see that shit. People want to see. No. Hmm. No. Interesting. No. And that, maybe that wow. explains why they like they they fought him and all these uh, budgetary things. Like they wouldn't let him spend the money that he wanted to do. To that's happened to him a few times when he gets on a certain kind of topic of a movie. People start really messing with him, and he seems to be pretty cynical overall like in retrospect of uh he said that about mission to mars that he had all these like kind of you know big set pieces that they forced him to like cut back on and uh like really imposed a a lot of i don't know limitations on what he was trying to do and so he felt like he couldn't really get a fair shake out of that movie and you know thus it was like this you know deliberate failure uh to <laughs> uh, yeah. sign up everybody but uh right. that's it's also i think we'd mentioned this we were talking the other day about how there was like this weird like spat of mars movies in like 2000 and yeah i mean well, that that can happen and that can mars, happen in hollywood yeah. like different we studios maybe, like yeah want to have their own yeah, mars but, project and out, out compete yeah. it but uh, or something the carpenter, just in the zeitgeist, and somehow it just naturally like comes about at the same time. Yeah. Or yeah, but but you know, well, yeah. maybe it complicates it that uh, that John Carpenter had like a pretty panned movie, Ghosts of Mars, that I think came out right right around and, the same yeah, time. Red Planet, everyone hated too. I saw Red Planet in theaters. I remember being very disappointed by it because yeah, it just I guess ends while up you like you were watching Red Planet. Yeah. I was watching Mission to Mars. I was exactly. in the other theater. You know, we, yeah, it all right. was covered. Uh, either way, it was all kind of like bad news for the most part. Going to Mars was uh, like either there were going to be vampire aliens that run out and try to kill you, mm-hmm. and like you and Ice Cube have to you know blast your way out of it, or uh, yeah, there's like weird aliens and stuff, or like the dumbest one, Red Planet, uh, uh, like the robot dog you brought with you turns hot homicidal and just starts trying to kill everybody <laughs> so like they're just fighting this yeah. robot dog they brought with them on like an, a barren landscape i never saw red planet I don't it's think, really stupid yeah um, i think i any, got yeah. ghost of mars confused with red planet at first because i do remember that one where they're like riding around the stupid like atv on mars like blasting like these alien vampire things uh, i think there's another one where they yeah. weren't wearing space helmets it just was like oh yeah we solved that like there's air yeah you oh know, they did like find that. life on mars and red planet according to wikipedia um they did they but it's not what like, i don't think it's what yeah it's not them. like a big ostrich type alien that you know uh is like there to, um, yeah. I, unless the life on mars like killed the robot dog i forget i forget the ending i blocked it out of my memory yeah. anyways um so yeah um, i don't know I, I guess like he got caught up in that mars sandstorm of failure uh in 2000 yeah. but really suffered yeah, for it more funny- than other People One of my favorite anecdotes about that is that, like, as a result of that, and also, I guess, of the movie Mars Needs Moms that no one saw, like, oh, uh, at some point, weird. like, people just. Disney, like, had calculated algorithmically that, like, people hate movies that refer to Mars in the title. Uh, yeah. Which, you know... Uh, so when they so, released John Carter, right? Yeah, they just called it, like, you know, obviously John Carter of Mars is a much more exciting title and kind of gives you a sense of, like, what the movie is about. You know, it's based on those old stories by the Tarzan guy, Edgar Rice Burroughs. But, mm-hmm. yeah, they just made it John Carter, which is, like, I have no idea what this is about, like, and it just sounds awful. It sounds like the worst movie ever. Zero like, it sounds idea. like Antoine... It sounds like a weird version of Antoine Fisher or something. Like, yeah, yeah, uh, no, it does. Like, like, he he, he became a basketball coach and taught these kids how to, like, you know, like, that. that's what... I mean, yeah. Coach Carter, the John Carter. Yeah, coach I forget Carter, which yeah. came out first, but uh like i don't know who in their marketing department uh but i don't know also why they're so obsessed with mars and 
Just um, trying to shove yeah, this Mars stuff that, down like, our throat. All those, yeah, well, I guess, you know, it was the millennium, you know, yeah, imagining yeah, new yeah. futures. But then, like, there was the Martian, which I guess it didn't oh, have yeah, any kind yeah. of ETs. And, no, okay. they're almost more boring now. There's also Mars Attacks, another uh, vicious yeah. piece of anti-alien propaganda, which is a genuinely upsetting movie. Yeah, yeah, it was like an upsetting uh, Tim Burton movie. Yeah, I remember the aliens like planting their flag in the president's body or something. You know, yeah, like yeah, 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 yikes. Uh, but anyways, yes, like, uh, I mean, yeah, I think... We, we should possibly do an episode about like Mars. Uh, <laughs> we should just do an episode where we watch Red Planet, Ghost of Mars, and <laughs> Mars, and evaluate... Try to like, triangulate what was going what on. Was going the PSYOP, yeah. Of, yeah, yeah to, to it, exactly. Um... um Anyway, yeah, so, word. Uh, that's just my thought. I guess he made, it would make, my theory would make a bit more sense if he had made Redacted before Mission to Mars and then was set up to have his career destroyed, but, I don't know, maybe his, well, I guess he made Casualties of War before he made Mission Oh, exactly. Mars, right? that was, that's another one yeah. that, uh, it, that really does show, I think, uh, a certain consistency with uh which re- redacted is very like kind of uh similar to like it, except it's just yeah. like in iraq and etc but i mean that is a uh, I, I guess he he acknowledges is like a very depressing movie and is like very dark and but like deals with the topic that uh i don't think anyone else really uh yes. maybe in platoon a little bit there is a scene where they want to rape a girl or something but like the entire movie of casualties of war is really like revolves around this kind of like moral uh, struggle and debate where i think yeah sean penn and like john c Riley and john leguizamo all uh want to like rape and murder a vietnamese girl and michael j fox is like the one soldier who's trying to stand up to them and i forget i mean it, it was based on I forget it was based on like a very specific incident or if it was kind of a pastiche. Uh, yeah, I think refl- it was reflective based of on reality. a very specific incident. The incident on Hill 192. Uh, oh, okay, okay. Font the Mao. Uh, yeah. Uh, and and yeah. he um, he released that in 1989 and I I have seen that before. Uh, it, it's it's good. It's just I mean it's a it's like very melodramatic. It's very dark. Uh, it's the, I think Michael J. Fox does give like a pretty uh spirited performance and everything but uh but you know a heavy a heavy watch you know it's uh it doesn't have like the the fun the pizzazz necessarily of like his other pictures but i think it does show that he had a commitment to uh looking at the nasty side of yes like american uh well like american militarism and like american masculinity and all these things uh i mean that's it's kind of the double-edged sword with de palma is that he's kind of like a a leering peeping tom and like a participant in male gaze but at the same time is also very fascinated with like male like toxic male brutality i guess for lack of a better word or like you know like male violence like interests him in a kind of in a a level where i think somebody had said maybe it was i don't know if it was pauline kale who was always a defender of de palma's when he would you know get hated on over the years but that uh like de palma still feels like uh like the the sinister male is like the other fundamentally in most of his movies and his 
camera, even though it's like a male gaze, it is very much like I'm the first male student at Sarah Lawrence, uh, and I'm not <laughs> like it's like yeah. he's really he's like sympathetic I mean, he with women, has but he's a male gaze. I feel like yeah. the whole like the gaze aspect and the male aspect are both uh, very much present. Yeah, very much that there. Movie, uh, yeah, that movie also uh, just as an aside, like was uh, written by like another big, and I guess uh, first pitch of the Palma by like a another big New York theater person, David Rabe, who wrote like Hurly Burly. So that also kind of oh came yeah, because that. that was a pl- yeah. was it wasn't it a play? I think it might have been. Yeah, I think that maybe it was like originally a play uh, that the Palma had seen and like wanted to make a movie of. Uh, yeah, yeah, because it's yeah. very talk heavy. It actually it seem it it plays out like a play. It's like a kind of like a Twelve mm-hmm. Angry Men kind of thing of like these dudes yeah. kind of in, in one place like arguing with each other for most of the time but david um, rabe mysteriously disowned it uh and dissociated himself from the film doesn't say why de palma had not been faithful to his work huh and that the film simplified complex relationships hmm well i mean eh, i guess i mean i mean it yeah. definitely has uh it, it has a very negative portrayal of like the perpetrators of it uh which uh, we'll see in Redacted was used against it as a kind of like, why aren't you showing these like rapist murdering U.S. soldiers is like being more nuanced and complicated. And, yeah. you know. Uh, also, these the, people can be pretty precious about like their writing, you know, so whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, but, a grain yeah. of salt and all that. Yeah. So also um, uh, Ennio Morricone did the music for that and for Mission of to Mars. So he did. Yeah, he did. He yeah. did. The no, yeah, good good the scores and director his, uh, set stuff up all around. by the cabal uh, to take the fall on the ET sword. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we didn't really talk about Blowout. I think Blowout is really good. Uh, I, I would. I, yeah, what did you think about You saw Blowout for the first yeah, time. Yeah, I thought Blowout yeah. was super great. Yeah, I thought that was, was amazing. Um, yeah, and like a yeah, very like compelling movie. Uh, and the final scene is really good. You know, like, I, I actually watched the, the Palma documentary before watching it for the first time, and it was, like, that last scene. I've kind of gave it away oh, a little bit, but it was that it's last a good scene. It's a good scream. It's a good scream. Oh, so no. Yeah, and that's, like, you know, that theme that I feel like he returns to where, like, uh, there's a sort of, like, commodification or assimilation of, like, this, like, you know, basically, uh, just to summarize the entire movie, this, like, piece of evidence, like, of, like, this, like, a conspiracy to assassinate, like, a presidential hopeful, like, a political yeah. figure ends up just being, like, incorporated into, like, this exploitation, like, uh, slasher movie, you know, like, this uh, dirty he, slasher he, movie, yeah. Yeah, he, he manages to record, you know, in this obsessive, like, very De Palma-y protagonist way, like, uh, it's all about, like, just replaying the tape and, like, syncing it up with the video and everything uh you know a video mm-hmm. that that uh someone else has captured and uh you know uh he is trying to put together this case but all of his efforts just completely fail and yep. he gets set up and uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, someone who's trying to protect dies and uh you know like uh, and then in the end like he just has to give up and like his the tape that was supposed to be like the smoking gun ends up just being used as like you know the the scream for this like that 
at the beginning, you know, he's just like a psycho ripoff, uh, shower yeah, exactly. murder, uh, which yeah, again is yeah. like kind of a uh, almost like digging at himself a little bit for you know being like I'm just some filmmaker in the system who is like ripping off Hitchcock tropes and like yeah. it just doesn't matter. Like I'm never yeah. you know like he he has this like thing about like almost I mean maybe it's from all the encounter uh, attack therapy uh, theater stuff, but like of like yeah. doing struggle sessions like with him like doing self-crit basically like in his own movies where you know he he constantly like has to like give himself a reality or his his character avatar he has to give them a reality check that like it's all going to be reincorporated back into like the system and (laughs) you can't really really escape it like no yeah like at the very beginning like his asshole like producer is just like riding him like john travolta's character that is like about Uh how like he needs a better scream for this like shitty movie and then the end like you know, he has no idea, like, what has gone on. He's so congratulatory. He's like, you found it, the perfect screen. And, uh, and he, like, like, just keeps replaying like, it. And John Travolta just, like, just Smoking a cigarette. Just, yeah. And, like, like just slowly starts, like, clutching his head. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's horrible. Oh, it's really uh, fantastic. Yeah. Travolta's yeah, great in yeah. that. Some, some of the yeah. visual flourishes in it, like, that that spinning camera scene when he's in his audio lab and he's, he's starting yeah. to realize that somebody right, came yeah, and pulled for all this tape. You know, that's thing, the, re- the revolution, the spinning, like, yeah, the spinning uh-huh. of the tape deck of the camera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Another, like, yeah, mm. technical geek kind of character, like, you know, with right. his, like, you know, very, uh, it, it'd be reductive to say it was just, like, kind of riffing on the conversation because I think, like, there's uh there's a real obsession of that stuff with the Palma and like building mm-hmm. people oh, that yeah, know like sure. technical know-how and like especially anything that you could use to spy on people um, yeah that's like very arch- I feel like the like all the elements that you see come up again like are pretty distilled pretty well in that movie like uh you know that like has all the like the, the salient aspects I think mm-hmm. you know that's that's really like the the, the elemental uh the Palma film that really captures the the essence um mm-hmm. and and yeah, the germ of it is is brilliant. Yeah, it was interesting how like uh, there was like sort of like a, a kind of a program to kill quasi thing where they were sort of framing uh, these like they were doing kind of like a, a weird like almost Terminator thing where they were uh, killing women who looked like the person they were trying to kill. Um, oh yeah. And, like yeah, like uh, they you, like to try to make it look like it was a serial killer like when yeah. they killed her like you know oh he has this profile where he kills these uh you know women who will have this description and then when they killed the person they were trying to like assassinate for nobody thinks you know, twice uh, about it to, as a cover that yeah, you're right like, that is some program to kill that, that yeah. that's literally i think an argument that like uh dave mcgowan made in program to kill is like a hypothesis of like why would you have like an organized group going around doing this it'd be like to cover up murders that you want to cover up that are important you you, you mask it with other murders and then mm-hmm. uh can just like create this narrative again it's like the sort of you know uh de palma is like very interested in appearances like not being what they seem and like the way narratives like mask realities uh yeah of stuff you know and i think mm-hmm. you know and, and the fact that he said that you know this uh this 
a lot of that movie was inspired by him kind of being interested in the Zabruder film. You know, I think uh, there's a lot of stuff around like the JFK assassination of like mysterious witnesses kind of turning up dead or like, oh, they had a car crash or they just had a heart attack one day or like this person mm-hmm. got cancer. Uh, things like that that you could really like spend, you know, you could spend an endless amount of time like diving into those like rabbit holes. So I feel like, you know, some of that, some of those same themes and dynamics were uh, very skillfully worked into Blowout. And yeah. yeah. It's good. Oh, yeah. Speaking of political conspiracies, did you get a chance to watch Snake Eyes? I didn't. I really wanted to, but I couldn't, like, find it except, like, on Cinemax or whatever. And, yeah. like, I was, like, you know, <laughs> trying to torn it. But, yeah. Um, but I, I have, I watched it, like, I wanted to rewatch it, but I watched it, like, years ago, like, kind of half paying attention while it was just, like, Marathon Nicolas Cage movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Uh, I It's not, like, fresh in my mind. So I, like, vaguely remember it. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. that was one of the ones I watched last year, and uh, definitely an enjoyable ride. I really do wish he had the tsunami ending that he talked about. In the yeah, that is great. That's of, super interesting. Yeah. yeah, but like you know, it's a it's an interesting. It's another like political conspiracy thriller that takes place mm-hmm. during a boxing match in Atlantic City, and Nicolas Cage is like a corrupt, uh, an over the top like corrupt cop. Um, yeah, who's like sitting front row, and then I guess. The Secretary of Defense, who's, like, at the fight, uh, gets sniped and assassinated in the middle of it. And then becomes kind of like this Rashomon thing, but also kind of like JFK thing. There's a conspiracy. I forget exactly. I mean, I remember the conspiracy being kind of like at least like a kind of a Pentagon critical kind of thing. It was all about like some some stupid weapon system that we didn't need, but like everyone was going to make a bun- bunch of money off of it. And like the Secretary of Defense didn't want to approve it. So they were going to kill him and replace him with somebody else or something like that. It wasn't, I, I think, do you remember? It was something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not like a, a super, not super well. well. I'm trying to uh, look now at the plot so that I can remember what the, <laughs> exactly the conspiracy was. Yeah, once again, it was a woman in peril. Uh, I do remember that uh, very clearly. There was, oh, you know what? Interestingly, there was like sort of a fake like Islamic terrorist. You're right. Like, yeah, it was supposed to, to be. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There yeah. was. Mm-hmm. And that, that, but that's right. a smoke. Screen. And that was also in the Fury kind of where like fake like sort of Palestinian terrorists like uh, were <gasps> you're hired right. by that dude to. In the yeah, very I beginning. If that was the original novel, or if that was uh, you know uh, the Palmas place. I guess maybe Same. it wasn't actually in the script. So, but yeah, because you know what? I mean, we'll get to this. When we talk about Redacted, but one of the things about Redacted that was like. All right, so, uh, like, well, all right, I'll just jump the gun. Yeah, but... Uh, well, well, I mean, we can talk about... I, 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 well, yeah. I guess, uh... uh yeah, no, we'll I talk mean, about if, when we get to Redacted, but I feel like this, uh, De Palma may have, may have lived this uh, situation. That's my other angle on the De Palma conspiracy theory that I think I can really... You can really kind of substantiate that, that he sort of... Oh, uh, lived, oh, with the, this, the thing that uh, happened after Redacted and that yes, kind of thing yeah uh, yeah that yes. um oh god well it's interesting because it happened to his friend martin scorsese too remember when that oh, yeah, job with, uh, shot reagan right. and said he did it to impress jodie foster because he watched taxi driver right. so many times yeah. well hmm. that's yeah but i almost feel like that was um like it, that was a little bit different because i actually i almost think that it's more plausible that john hankley jr like did that because of that like insane reason that doesn't really make any sense but i feel like Basically, you know, with Redacted, no one when Taxi Driver came out, no one was like, 
this is going to make someone kill Jodie Foster because, <laughs> you're right, you know, trying to right. kill the president because he loves yeah. Jodie Foster, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, no, for sure. but when Redacted came out, all these pundits were like, this is going to inspire the enemy, like, yep. wah, wah, wah. it's a like, protest, pro-terrorist this, movie, the troops, you know, yep, like, uh, right. and then this dude, you know, like, it, like, he was basically your standard, like, Salafi guy who, like, you know, Lone wolf, was, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but, like, you know, I almost, and, like, then, like, I feel like his lawyer really pushed the idea, or, like, it came out, like, you know, that, oh, it was all because he saw this clip of Redacted. Like, not yeah. really. Like, even if you accept everything at face value, like, you know, leaving aside, like, the whole, like, uh, lone wolf, like, whatever you want to say, yeah. like, uh, that angle to it, even if it was just, like, some dude who, like, you know, uh, was radicalized online as people like genuinely are yes i think that like the whole angle of like oh it was because of redacted like was that's ridiculous in a way that was like yeah. you know excessive uh-huh. uh and so, instrumentalized you know. to be like and also none, was, like, none of you ever better make that all these fools had yeah. made when it came out that like oh you know like because you're like telling a, a dramatized story of something that actually did happen like yes. and suggesting that uh you know american troops are capable of committing atrocities when we all know of course they're not because like there's no such thing as abu grave uh yep, like no, at all you know no, like uh, and this heroes. you know real incident american soldier yeah exactly all like, uh, like beautiful chris kyle's yeah um, so yeah and they all literally said like i think like michael medved or whatever like went on bill o'reilly's show and was like is this gonna inspire the enemy bill of course it is like yeah, you know of course yeah. it is you know it's and inspire uh the insurgents yeah and, so it was they like got that their wish because more. yeah yeah like, i no, believe like, yeah the, somebody walked up to i guess an air force base in germany and like killed two u.s servicemen and then yeah they they have this thing at the trial where it's like he yeah, watched and it's a, a classic clip of redacted like, and thought it was real so he he had to stop them from raping yeah. more girls like immediately it's, and kill them it's really Very interesting it's like a classic like uh islamophobic thing where like you know redacted is like a found footage type of movie you know like uh it's yeah. uh you know so it's a of like these you know uh american soldiers in, in iraq you know so and there's, you know, the classic found footage tropes of, like, uh, you know, filming them saying something like extremely damning and then just being, like, you know, yeah. you're capturing uh, something that really shouldn't be filmed. Just be like, turn that camera off, you turn know, like uh, off, how they always do, like, yeah. the Blair Witch type stuff, you know. But, uh, yeah, yeah. like, yeah, like, so, you know, there's a, but uh, it's it's just a classic thing. It's actually kind of, like, Islamophobic in a way because there's always this idea that, like, oh, you know, they can't tell fact from fiction you know it goes back well, to dude, the Ages, benghazi really ben- remember like, benghazi like oh, yeah, the, the literal course, excuse right. for yeah. it was like oh some mm. guy in like orange county made like a 10 minute video like making fun of muhammad and some people in benghazi yeah. saw it and attacked the u.s embassy well that's slightly that's slightly different because like you know uh muslims do get fired up over like well, yeah uh, yeah but i mean profit you know yeah, we, no, you're like right, everyone you're knew right. that was fake they were pissed about yeah like the depiction of the prophet but this is a little bit different because this is about the idea this guy saw redacted and thought it was real and yeah. that's why he did it and that's uh-huh. something that's like you know uh i remember reading in some uh book that was actually like a little bit like a sort of an apologetic uh book or you know a, a more like uh th- that, like you know sort of post-orientalist like a uh, book that was like uh talking about how like uh these spanish prisoners of war perform some kind of uh like i think it might have been the ottomans or or, uh, or moroccans or uh in algeria or whatever they were prisoners of war in some in some muslim country and like they performed like uh a play like mocking the the sultan or something and uh 
you know, uh, the guy said, like, well, you know, Muslims don't have a tradition of performance, so uh, they probably weren't capable, uh, able to separate fact from fiction. So that's why they, like, no, they oh were my God. so they killed them, like, every, like you yeah. know, lots of, and, it, you know, it, of course, yeah. it just goes back to the idea that Muslims can't tell what's real and what from what's fake because our prophet is fake is, like, the idea. You know, that's mm, what it really all goes back to, like, that, you know, uh, our prophet, like, pretended to be any messages from God, like, you know, the grotiest stuff of, like, he, uh, the, uh, you know, he trained a bird to perch on his shoulder or whatever, like, all this, all these lies about uh-huh. how he was a pseudo-prophet. It all go, you know, and then, then we see, you know, years, years like, uh, millennia later, you know, even, or at least centuries, uh, the same thing is instrumentalized to say, like, oh, this, this fool, uh, you know. They're just so sit, easily deceived. This is a found footage movie. Yeah, exactly, yeah, you know. Yeah, you can't tell fact uh, from fiction. You know, I mean, yeah. he believes in Islam. Like, you know, how could he tell that this movie wasn't real when he thinks this is from God? I, mean, give me a break. I feel like that's even been extended uh, beyond uh, uh, kind of uh, Muslims now and now could it can almost be applied to just about anybody is that, like, you mm-hmm. could just claim that, like, they didn't, they couldn't tell something they saw on the internet from being fiction and then storm the Capitol um, well, or something yeah, along those lines. Like, yeah, well, yeah, it's something that I think, well, I another mean, Another war on terror paradigm, was, like, permeating further. Thing, passing around Twitter where it's like you know you can either choose to appeal to QAnon people or choose to appeal to people who have college education which is like the idea that like you know they don't have like critical thinking training or something like yeah. that I, i'm sure you saw it but you know like <laughs> uh, they course, don't have the critical like you know if they're not educated that's like well you know that's not the problem like you mm-hmm. know that's if like if only it were that easy on. like uh you're you know, wearing I mean, five masks of, right now sir <laughs> yeah, in the case of the like uh, redacted guy, like uh, you know the 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 the, sh- the alleged redacted shooter, the uh, the Frankfurt killing, I guess in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, Arid Uka, uh, German the citizen, Doomer. Descent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, right. Yes, the Palma Doomer. Uh, in in his case, I think that you know he probably like. You know, was I mean, I feel like it, whether or not he thought Redacted was real or not, like, which I feel like, you know, who knows if he did or, or didn't. I feel like that was something that came out, like, in his defense, you know, which wasn't really much yeah. of a defense. But yeah. uh, Palmer made him was, do it. <laughs> he, he had much more, like, you know, that he was upset about, uh, legitimately upset about, uh, than just that, you know. Of course. Uh, he was also, like, like, Albanian, but he's a German citizen. Sus vibes, like, down there in the Balkans uh, with, like, you know, uh, quote unquote jihadi kind of um, mercenary asset type people yeah well, I, mean, I don't know it's it very in, fishy he was living in germany he was just going on like isis websites and listening to those nasheeds so, like stuff you know <laughs> he was like upset but like it's not like good to murder civilians obviously once again we reiterate on the podcast of course yes. but like you know the grievances such as like you know the actual massacre that redacted is based on like that mm-hmm. is infuriating and it does attest to the fact that like you know, uh, American soldiers uh, and the United States uh, government that, like, commands these soldiers, like, doesn't value certain people's lives. And, like, if you feel that you're a part of that community that's being systematically dehumanized, like, you're going to get pissed off. And, like, if you have, like, a religious reading of this, that, like, you're in, in like, eschatological war, like, uh, you know, and that there's uh, a reward to uh, get from this, then, like something that happens many times not good like don't uh, yeah, commit any yeah. sex, but uh, uh you know it's bad we disavow disavow but um but uh, you know like you know, uh, I it's think not and those things can also coexist <laughs> like, with like you know, th- those things can 
Yeah, those things. It's not can because also American coach. filmmakers were critical of the Iraq War. Of course <laughs> like, not. That's not, of course that's not, not the reason why. Uh, which they were uh, pains yeah. to say they had no intention to translate into Arabic. Uh, I think when they yeah, got it's not because American it. filmmakers were critical of the massacres that uh, you know like were committed. It's because of the massacres that were committed. It's like yeah, completely exactly. talk about uh, think about playing the cart before the horse. I think I want to talk just for a second about like the content of Redacted, which I think uh, mm-hmm. uh, I watched yesterday. Uh, you didn't get a chance yeah. to watch it yet, right? No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, um, I sent you yes. a clip from it to give yeah, you a Yeah, I saw that clip idea. of it. You know, yeah. I get the idea of Redacted. Uh, yeah, I saw like that clip of it. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, I read up on on Redacted out of curiosity, but no, I haven't actually watched it. Yeah, um, I yeah I have to say like I was pretty. It's a different, um, it, it, you know, it's it's necessarily kind of a departure from the rest of his films because it is shot as a kind of like mockumentary and uh, mm-hmm. kind of a pastiche of like different forms of uh, of media that uh, that are all you know kind of like organically like baked into the story so like the the main thrust of it is from uh, basically the, the cameras being held by a private character Angel Salazar who is kind of the De Palma stand-in in this movie so mm-hmm. there's still a lot of the same dynamics at play but he basically is like filming a war diary of being over in Iraq and is kind of like you know uh, just filming random stuff on like a little Sony like you know camcorder and his whole thing is like he's in Iraq uh, because like he didn't have he wanted to go to college and uh, he didn't have any money so he joined the army for that and he wants to shoot stuff while he's in Iraq because his dream is to use that footage to like apply to USC film school because like, he wants to make movies. So already you have kind of this young like millennial like film junkie uh, filming the antics of his uh, squadron, and then it also cuts to like different. Uh, there are a few sequences that weirdly are in French. I don't know if they were like guest directed, but it's like very uh, uh, that are kind of a little bit. Um, kind of classic mood setting to Palma, but most of it is like surveillance cameras like on the base and then this guy's camera footage and then occasionally like an international news report but then he even incorporates some things like uh kind of like proto like youtube like things on a computer screen like one of the characters wives has like an army wives blog and she posts like video blog you know uh, updates on it that basically kind of advance the story and um 
And so he like jumps. He even, of course, later in the movie uh, actually recreates like uh, I would say pretty realistically a kind of a Al Qaeda in Iraq era like beheading video of a U.S. soldier Mm -hmm. and really goes like as you would expect with De Palma. uh, he kind of you know, leans into it all the way. And uh, just as a side note, we didn't mention, like, his dad was an orthopedic surgeon, and I guess, like, he would go visit his dad uh, growing up as a kid. Oh, yeah. And he saw a lot mm-hmm. of blood all the time, and that is why, that's why he says that he's pretty comfortable with, like, showing a lot of blood and, and things like that uh, in his movies. Uh, so, you know, I guess keep that in mind. Uh, he do, I, he doesn't seem to think, or at least he doesn't present it as a kind of a salacious, like, I love, like, gore, just like this like he he's more like <laughs> yes. uh, yeah uh but anyways like the the basic setup of this despite the different like formats and stuff that he's experimenting with is pretty similar to casualties of war however it is based on a uh an incident that did happen during the iraq war i want mm-hmm. to say yeah loosely based on the 2006 mahmoudia killings in mahmoudia iraq where when U.S. Army soldiers raped an Iraqi girl and murder her along with her family, and so just like a year after that happened, he went and shot uh, this movie in Jordan. Interestingly, it got pretty well received at the Venice Film Festival where it premiered. It got the Silver Lion Best Director Award. Uh, premiered at Toronto, uh, New York, Buenos Aires, um, but then it only had like a very limited fifteen theater release in the United States and got uh let me just let me check the tomato meter here um <laughs> uh 45% oh no not very good uh, yeah no pretty that's low rotten. for the palma that's certified it's rotten, rotten. yeah uh, it's certified rotten yeah um and a lot of people had bad things to say about it now i personally think like sure okay the these actors i don't know if they're necessarily non actors uh, i mean i don't think they are but it had that kind of non actor style and it really it, in a way it's kind Kind of like to Palma, maybe going back to like his uh, his theater, his radical theater roots in a way, because he does these very very long takes where he is kind of embodying a character, you know, whose voice is behind the camera, but is obviously like interacting with the performers in this like faux documentary way. Uh, but it's still very. Um, it's still very based in long takes and stuff. So it's not even feels bad to call it like a mockumentary. I guess people, you know, you say like a faux documentary or something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, anything, I guess that's like a fake documentary is a mockumentary technically. Yeah. Yeah. Though, uh, it's yeah. not mocking anybody unless you want to, unless according to many, uh, reviewers is mocking it's our mocking brave troops. troops. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. And I, I have mm. to say, like, I mean, this is probably, I might put it up. There are only two movies that I'm aware of that, are anywhere decent towards depicting like western movies about the iraq war that are kind of of any value and that would be probably like the battle for haditha uh that's actually a british movie but uh that Mm -hmm. is was a surprisingly kind of good one uh that was nick broomfield who directed that and then i would say like this one uh because it they i mean they both revolve around like really brutal atrocities uh the the other movie was about the haditha killings um, but both were basically like completely memory hold and, or attacked in a very hostile way by like the media press and the regular press. I think Bill O'Reilly went on his own kind of a, a jihad or crusade against uh, Redacted. And I think at one point he I read that he called 
uh, for Mark Cuban, who is one of the executive producers of the movie, he called for uh, a boycott of the Dallas Mavericks because Mark Cuban had, uh, you know, financed this sicko, pro-terrorist, anti-troop movie. And to be fair, I mean, just to be clear, like, it's pretty anti-troop. Right. I, I mean, just uh, I don't know. Yes, from the, from the clip I group. sent you. Yeah. Right. Like mm-hmm. the and right. they are they are evil and uh, very evil. Yeah, they're and, like complete like racist maniacs, like sociopathic. Like they they invoke quite uh, hilariously uh, the rules of engagement to justify like their incredibly like sadistic sociopathic behavior. One of them mm-hmm. is like uh, named Rush and is like an obese like marine. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the other one is like you know Reno uh, Flake. Like. Yeah, has Who like a, gives a, a Confederate flag like yeah. flying in his uh, bunk, you know. Uh, and he he gives yeah. a very like frightening performance. Uh, Patrick Carroll, uh, who I don't know, I, I I don't. He's only been in like a couple things. Uh, he was in like a Constantine, <laughs> like that Keanu Reeves movie. And, oh yeah, uh, right. I of guess course. Uh, was on the eleventh hour. Uh, I guess he did a little Boardwalk Empire. And uh, uh, he was in Hail Caesar, I guess, uh, in like a bit part. But like uh, he gives a really scary performance uh, as like an American uh, maniac, basically. And like and not all the characters. There is a kind of Michael J. Fox character in it who tries to like convince these guys to not. It's also incredibly premeditated. So like in this movie, it's like and most of it's like kind of caught by this cameraman in the squad where they kind of calmly discuss how they're gonna do this and it's like it's not an impetuous like our buddy got killed and we're just freaking out and we're gonna go do something bad it's like there's a boiling rage throughout this where basically like repeatedly just from time to time like the one by one they're getting picked off by ieds and every time they do like this rage builds in them but but De Palma's good about kind of like not i don't know giving like leaning too much into like 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 wouldn't you do the same thing if like you were getting attacked by IEDs like he I don't know it feels like a very consistently he's like very against this war and he's like not going to give it any kind of like a quarter in terms of like making it seem sympathetic he just uses it to be like these guys are already like primed to kill and are like uh, I don't know like imperialist mad dogs and the fact that like you know their squad leader getting like blown up uh is just gonna like escalate their psychopathic uh urge that they like very consciously want to like sublimate through uh raping somebody and then like you know murdering and and stuff like that and the kind of justifications they give for i think like you said when uh they the first time they kill uh, a pregnant woman who like they drive through a checkpoint because they don't understand what the hand signals mean and they get lit up and you know it talks about how it's like you know what honestly like i didn't feel anything it's like gutting a fish and like somebody else like rules of engagement bro and like that's right that's right you know and it's like he was just doing his job but then they almost get in a fight over it because he's asking him he's like dude you just like you smoked like a pregnant woman like you don't feel bad about that they almost get in like you know that, like it's just I don't know it's like so much like toxic energy that's just like primed to fucking explode and the their inability to like make sense of the propaganda that they implicitly buy into and like the fact that there's like the people obviously don't want them there 
and they're getting picked off and stuff but they almost have this like entitled american attitude of like you know i think the the guy says in like a deposition something along it's like man we do all this shit for them you know we we fucking cut, took care of saddam brought him democracy protect him from their own fucking insurgents and shit and you know i'm not asking for a medal but like you know uh, like uh, maybe just like try to stop killing us maybe you know, like, what the fuck? Like, what? You know, like, kind of just, like, whining a little bit. Like, like he doesn't understand. Like, he bought into, the, like, the we're bringing freedom to these Iraqis. Uh, but he's also, like, he says, like, sand N-word, like, every third uh, word out yeah. of his mouth. And, like, you know, Haji this, Haji that. And, like... Uh, is incredibly racist and he yeah he has the confederate flag um he gives a very strange monologue at the end about his brother vegas his name is reno and like he tells this like very noirish like like desert noirish like story about how like his father was like a teamster leader and there was like some corrupt teamster that was ratting to the feds and so his brother vegas got hired to like murder his whole family and uh, it's just it's like a really bizarre kind of chilling uh monologue it's not like a extremely long take but i don't know the acerbicness and like the black pilled nature of like these soldiers he does not hold back on it and i think it's really interesting that this movie got so much shit for its portrayal of the iraq war in 2007 and then i think it was just a year later in 2009 uh, eight or 2009 that the hurt locker uh like sweeps the oscars and wins best picture Mm -hmm. And it's, like, roundly, like, supported by Hollywood. It's, like, wow, this is, like, such a brave, amazing movie. And I think if you've seen both these movies, it's, like, not hard to tell, like, well, why was there such a difference in this reaction? I don't think it's because, as a lot of people said, uh, that this is, like, such a terrible movie that doesn't work and isn't interesting. And uh, some one reviewer literally called the movie a war crime. Yeah, a, a war crime of a petty degree or something, you know, like a small-scale yeah. war crime. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, My movie favorite that's, reception yeah. of it was by Michael Medved, who said, like, this is the most surreal quote about the movie, I think. I mean, not, like, the most, like, galling, like, not as absurd as calling it a war crime, but uh-huh. uh, he uh, said, like, uh, you know, he went on O'Reilly and was, like, railing against how it was, like, the worst movie he'd ever seen, Uh and uh, he said something like, Redacted implies that atrocities occur with the tacit or overt support of the American people. If that were true, maybe the scene wouldn't seem so ridiculous. Um, like, the implication that it's not true is truly, like, the, you know, a testament to, like, the national derangement that, like, hangs over the United States. Like, uh, Absolutely. Like, really uh, absurd to suggest that, like, you know, the movie's bad because it's not true that atrocities occur with a tacit support of the American people. Uh, Like, there are multiple, like, verified instances of that happening in related to the Iraq War alone, including the actual massacre this is based on. Uh, And this movie even, this movie even kind of, like, presages the kind of the release of the collateral murder video and like the Chelsea Manning thing that would happen like a year or two later where there's even like a kind of proto anonymous like one of the squad members I don't think it's ever like revealed who basically like uploads to like YouTube or like live leak like a voice modified like like if you're seeing this like I'm being threatened by the Department of Defense like my squadron like raped and murdered a girl and her family in 2006 and like you know basically like his whistleblowing about it and uh and 
so it clearly is reflecting real events that were happening in Iraq, like extremely real events. But uh, but I guess not because, you know, people called it clumsy, heavy handed, sullenly self-congratulatory, utterly surreal, phony picture. It's obscene, a war crime of a petty order. What happens within these formats is too fake to believe. The soldiers don't sound like soldiers. So naive, oh, it's man. an embarrassment. Those are just a few of the, the digs that people launched at it. Uh, whatever your sympathy for its politics it really is a monstrously bad film on every level said the telegraph uk <laughs> like i mean uh, come on it also i have to say that uh it, it like many of de palma's movies it like indicts the filmmaker character and uh, in again like de palma in a way almost like launches a monologue at himself where i think as they're going into this raid uh to do this terrible thing like the the one sort of like good soldier uh, launches into this monologue about like you think you're better than those people just because you're standing there holding a camera you're gonna run back off to the, like you know uh, to the world and basically sell it to the highest bidder you're even more disgusting than the media or like you know the soldiers or whatever like you think you're better because you're filming this and like you're filming atrocities or whatever and uh so there's like you know De Palma again is like playing with uh even the representation of these tragedies there's a whole thing in the documentary about the girl that portrayed the girl who is, you know, uh, w- was attacked and killed and everything. Um, and how she was, uh, I think they found her in Jordan. I think she was a refugee. Uh, I forget if she was an Iraqi uh, refugee particularly. But correct me if I'm wrong. Did he not say that, like, she got into some trouble when the movie came out? And then he like arranged it for to get her a visa to come to America and like paid for her to go to college. Uh, I do not recall uh, that aspect of the documentary. <laughs> I don't I don't know um, if I'm like yeah. he definitely said he paid for somebody to go to college and I feel like it was that uh, girl who was in it. Um who he said, you know, he he really praised her performance and, and like her like uh, commitment to kind of, you know, portraying a version of like this story. Um, etc. But, you know, people really were pissed off by this. It also ends with, like, a very controversial montage of, of, like, Iraqi war dead, like, uh, you know, the bodies of civilians and stuff. I guess there was a, there's a fight because De Palma wanted to show their faces. And then the producers, including um, Mark Cuban, were very concerned that they would get, uh, they would get sued by families of you know people that would do this and it would potentially be in like bad taste so eventually he kind of like ms painted over the faces but they're all there at the end of the movie and it's like very uh it's heavy you know much like casualties of war the other thing that uh in relation to uh what you're saying about like the the islamic terrorist uh misdirection and snake eyes Mm -hmm. that jumped out at me in this is that basically like okay so after after this like assault happens uh and they they kill this entire family and stuff like the the cameraman guy had like rigged uh, like a helmet cam uh to to film the whole thing for like his war diary and ends up like filming the worst parts of all of it and i believe that after it happens somehow maybe it like it 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 gets out that like he has footage of it and there's one scene where, like, he goes and, like, sets up – it's a long shot. He, like, sets up his camera, you know, on a 
whatever on a ledge or something and like goes and stands out in the street and is kind of like narrating like here i am like in samara and blah 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 and then like a van just like screeches up behind him and these dudes in balaclavas uh like just snatch him and like speed away and then and then it cuts to like his body lying in a field with his head like perched on it um and then you know later it shows the actual like execution video very like uh uh, daniel pearl you know isis style uh execution video but it almost made me think like he was like a witness being eliminated and it's like almost the way that de palma kind of shows it feels sus like there's a i think in the next scene they go to the father who's the only surviving member of this family that's been massacred and they ask they uh, they ask him like what he's heard about this case and he says first like they said that a sunni militia came into my home and did this but like that doesn't make any sense because like i'm a sunni and so then they told me that like the shia militias came in and did it but like that doesn't make any sense and then eventually uh you know, the, the somebody said, well, you know, did you hear that one of the soldiers uh, had been kidnapped and like beheaded by the I think it was like the Mujahideen Shura Council was like the name of this group. And he said something like, oh, like I don't believe that. It was kind of calling into question like everything around it. And it almost made me think like uh, there have always been these kind of weird rumblings, especially around the time of like the surge and like, uh, you know, David Petraeus being in charge of like the U.S. military, like arming different factions of the insurgents and like playing them off of each other and things like that and then when you think about like al-nusra front in syria and libya and isis getting all this kinds of support from like the u.s military and the cia uh again kind of like the serial killer thing of like oh we're gonna we're gonna take this guy out using like a cover story that everyone's gonna believe but actually like the u.s military had to murder him because he was the only person with video of the incident and they were like covering it up. Like I feel like De Palma yeah. is suggesting that in the movie, just the way things are kind of laid out. And it's like it's like how did they know to like snatch this guy like right away? It didn't seem random. It seemed like these guys like roll up specifically to snatch him, and then like the footage gets lost. So yeah. you know, uh, or it's a, it's either gets lost or it gets like bare. It gets uh, taken in the possession of the the rapists. Like they basically you know just take it for themselves after that and like take his camera and uh and try to hide it and stuff people also ripped on this movie because they complained that this is maybe one of the more lib complaints that well actually you know in the the actual war crime the military did prosecute these soldiers and they got life in prison so yeah sure okay yes in that incident um the the main perpetrators and like before like you know it does it's like not really part of the movie yeah yeah it doesn't really i mean because then it just cuts to kind of like uh like this montage of of you know uh horrible death and all this stuff and uh and mentions that like oh uh 2000 it mentions like a pretty high number of civilians have been killed in like the last 24 months like in iraq um and it doesn't mention i think for legal reasons they avoided mentioning uh it was private first class stephen dale green who is, I guess, the ringleader of the Mahmoudia massacre. He did get life in prison. The prosecutors sought the death penalty, um, but the jurors failed to agree unanimously. And so he just got life without parole, um, which actually, which outraged 
the relatives of the family that was massacred um and with a beer's uncle uh that's the victim described you describing the sentence as quote a crime almost worse than the soldier's crime uh and then he i believe committed suicide in a federal jail in 2014 um and um, there's like there's I like found, five or six uh, other guys that are in, uh, I found uh, Michael Medved's tirade about the movie uh, Mm -hmm. that I think is uh, worth hearing. Um, It's uh, this is a transcript from his appearance on O'Reilly. I guess O'Reilly, you know, uh, it was one of his little uh, things. O'Reilly went off on it. Like the War on Christmas. Yeah, Uh he was obsessed (laughs) with this movie. Michael Medved came on uh, and said, uh, "I'm actually one of the few people in this country who has seen the new movie. It is called Redacted." And let me just tell you, before I go to actually reviewing it, it could be the worst movie I've ever seen. I mean, the out-and-out worst. Most disgusting, most hateful, most incompetent, most revolting, most loathsome, most reprehensible cinematic work I have ever encountered. Wow. This is having reviewing movies for more than 25 years. Covers a lot of disgusting ground, but none more disgusting than Redacted, which portrays uh, the Marine Corps, one of the finest organizations ever assembled by Uh, human beings. What? portrays the u.s marine corps as corrupt vicious racist killers and rapists oh my god uh correct yeah Um, okay okay yeah also like one of the finest i feel like even o'reilly like what about like you know i don't know the sisters of quiet mercy or something you know one of the finest like you know even if you like love the marines i feel like anyway uh come on yeah i feel like even the marines would be a little uh, uncomfortable with that description of them as yeah uh, they kind of like being bad like uh, anyway, it betrays the members of the our Marine Corps in the most disgusting way imaginable. They hang out in barracks, drunk or stoned, with Confederate flags all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, this is really a time warp because they're uh, saying the Confederate flag is bad. Uh, you know, uh, like kind of implied that you know the Marines are so good, so they wouldn't fly the Confederate flag. Yeah, they wouldn't. Say, they, like, exactly. They, they wouldn't dare. Uh, yeah. They wouldn't dare. Uh, and the head Marine, who is the leading rapist and murderer, is a big fat guy. I mean, hugely out of shape, right? Just a typical Marine. Marines tend not to look like that. Big fat guy, overhanging belly, cigar chomping, loud mouth, sort of fair complexion. His name is Rush. Nothing in movies is an accident. They are clearly trying to indict and smear Rush Limbaugh by saying that he secretly wants to rape and abuse 14-year-old girls and murder them and then burn their bodies. Yo, Uh, okay, that's 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 an odd... uh, Given that didn't Rush get, like, arrested... Wasn't he a big, like, love to go to the Dominican Republic with a duffel bag full of, like, Oxycontin kind of of person? uh, Like, um, you know, to say that Rush Limbaugh secretly wants to do that is Uh. kind of, like, a kindness, you know? Like, uh... um, Almost... like uh like like doth protest a little too much there like yeah. uh like what is he yeah is, uh, right is yeah he secretly <laughs> right. nervous uh, that that's what yeah Rush does? the play like, is the thing where it all catch the conscience of the king uh you know but anyway the film was atrociously acted it's incredibly badly done look i never say this i don't believe in boycotts i don't i wonder mm-hmm. how you feel about bds but uh but i actually <laughs> think bill o'reilly uh i know has been going on about this movie even though he hasn't seen it okay i've now seen it Bill, Bill, hey, it's worse than you think. This film is an atrocity. 
it is zero stars as far as I'm concerned. It's very much rated R. I honestly was close to vomiting when I saw the film. I have seen a lot of unspeakable garbage in years and years of reviewing movies. Nothing quite like this. It is a slander on the United States of America. It is a slander on the Marine Corps. It is a slander on our troops. Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, paid for this entirely. Now he elsewhere has given money to support the troops. I know he has. He ought to be ashamed. Everyone associated with this film ought to be ashamed. I will never see a Brian De Palma film in the same way again. This is a veteran Hollywood director. What is he trying to do with this thing? And this is a key part. Uh, uh-huh. Will it inspire future terrorists? Of course it will, because it portrays the United States troops in Iraq as sick, murderous, deviant losers. Again, true. Um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, like, yeah. wow. Wow. Uh, that is... Uh, yeah, so it was like a fait accompli that, uh, you know, this is going to inspire future terrorists. And lo and behold... Uh, lo and behold, that's exactly yeah. what it did, uh, like, four yes. or five years later. And, uh, yeah, it got blown up into this huge thing. And If he hadn't seen that clip of Redacted, nothing would have happened. This never would have uh, happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which that I was feel... the main thing. Like, that was the main thing that happened on that guy's road to radicalization, for sure. Like, if Brian De Palma had never made Redacted... Like, you know, it would have had a huge impact. I mean, look, um, like having watched it like that, that scene is very effectively disturbing. Like I pretty much had to like turn the volume down almost all the way at a certain point because it was like too fucked up. Like it really doesn't hold back from like and there's not even much of a it's like there's nothing standing in the way like there there's no good person in, in the scene. You know, like it's uh, it's all bad. And stuff like that. And it cuts away, like, before it it goes even worse. But it definitely is a thing that gets you, like, kind of pissed off at, like, yo, fuck these people. Like, fuck these U.S. troops. Like, this is so wrong, etc. But it's still within couched within, like, a movie that's obviously... I mean, I guess the, the prosecutor or the defense lawyer claimed that he just saw, like, a disembodied clip of, like, that... That helmet yeah. cam I mean, scene like, of the rape, and that's yeah, it. I'm sure and it's like, a shocking film, but like this is based yeah. on like something that actually did happen. Like, yeah, uh, so it's kind of irrelevant. Mahmoudia massacre, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's really an artistic rendition of like. Uh, so uh, on March 12, 2006, soldiers at a checkpoint uh, from the 502nd uh, Infantry Regiment, consisting mm-hmm. of Green. Paul E. Cortez, specialist, specialist James Barker, Private First Class Jesse V. Spielman, and Private First Class Brian L. Howard have been playing cards, illegally drinking alcohol, whiskey mixed with energy drink, hitting golf balls, and discussing plans to rape a beer and, quote, kill some Iraqis. Green was very persistent about killing some Iraqis and kept bringing up the idea. At some point, the group decided to go to a beer's home after they had seen her passing by their checkpoint earlier. The four soldiers of the six-man unit responsible for the checkpoint, Barker, Cortez, Green, and Spielman, then left their post for Abir's home. Two men, Howard and another soldier—this is a 14-year-old girl, by the way—remained yeah. uh, at the post. Howard had not been involved in discussions to rape and murder the family. He heard the four men talking about it and saw them leave, but thought they were joking and were planning to beat up some Iraqi men to blow off some steam. The sixth soldier of the checkpoint had no involvement. On the day of the massacre, Abir's father, Kasim, was enjoying time with his family while his sons were at school. In broad daylight, the five U.S. soldiers walked to the house, not wearing the uniforms, but wearing army-issue long underwear to look like, quote, ninjas, and separated 14-year-old Abir and her family into different rooms. Spielman was responsible for grabbing Abir's six-year-old sister, who was outside the house with her father and bringing her inside the house. Green then broke Abir's mother's arms... 
uh, and murdered her parents and younger sister, a six-year-old girl, while two other soldiers, Cortez and Barker, raped a beer. Barker wrote that Cortez pushed her beer to the floor, lifted her dress, and tore off her underwear while she struggled. Yeah, so I think you get the um, idea. Um, so, w- with the exception of um, dressing up like ninjas to look like they were maybe insurgents, uh, everything in Redacted is pretty much a reflection of like what yeah, happened if not, there. Like, if not like a sort of better than what actually slightly less awful Uh, than what actually happened yeah like it's Uh, awful enough to give you the impression but like it was even worse than that in reality so the idea that this is uh somehow out of bounds that this is like wrong to uh and and like insulting to the historical reality in some way is insane yes uh yeah our soldiers aren't lose uh green who later said the crime was awesome then raped I mean, a beer and shot her in the head several times. Jesus, uh, Jesus. Great. And and you know that, uh, they, that's they the thing. They like, love to celebrate the, their crimes with a meal of chicken wings. Uh, literally, yeah, the, so, the, uh, the not losers, not deviants. Uh, this is a slander on our troops. Yeah, these brave uh, no. men. Uh, they're just uh, like the hurt locker guy, great. like running into harm's way. And then they lied and, and tried to cover it up and tried to blame it on. And insur- on insurgents, just yep. like in the movie. Yeah, so like the movie, uh, yeah. and even the, like I, I get it, and I think there's like this weird. There, there is a certain problem. Uh, it's maybe related to anti-hero fatigue in movies and television these days, where there's like a confusion. I forget if we mentioned this before, but like the confusion between the representation of something and the endorsement of something, and like how those two things, like I think. Maybe it was that that sensibility wasn't fully yeah, I think like activated. This. We how like representing something is bad uh, unless it's Baphomet, like then, <laughs> like you know, it's okay. Yeah, it's or let's just like you necessarily um, endorse that these characters are uh, are. Like, I mean, this movie obviously evil. isn't like they understood that it wasn't an endorsement. Yeah, yes. like I get oh, yeah, yeah. that. They, like, you they know. know. I mean, I understand. Uh, like, I get it. Like, if this is something that would be traumatic, like for people who have gone through something like this before, like you know, or have experiences in their lives that like are brought up by like you know hearing or or seeing this type of thing, like that's fine. And like you know, people should be aware of that before they see these type of, of movies. But of course, like as like agit like political agitprop, it's one hundred percent acceptable to like make a movie like uh about like a real event that yep. is critical of like the u.s military for something that actually happened yeah like yeah, well, know, exactly uh, exactly he's not pulling this story out of complete thin air even though to some extent he would have the right to do that uh in general but the fact that it's completely and i guess my my point about like the representation thing is that people are almost like mad that he's actually representing it realistically and it's like, but like, why, you know, like they, it's like they want him to throw them a little cookie and like make some of these guys like more sympathetic for lack of a better term. Cause what else could they want from this movie? Yeah. I mean, like, right. Like, like, what do you want uh, you know, out of the portrayal of these monsters? Like, yeah, they want to make them like, more they want a hurt locker guy, you know, who's yeah, like, exactly. they want the good guy. You know? And there is uh, actually, there is one character. So you have to do like, give him enough credit. And I guess that was realistic where eventually I think one of their squad mates like ratted on all of them and got them like arrested. Um, but there's like a really, uh, I told you a little bit, there's a great scene with that guy, the Michael J. Fox at the end where he's like at a bar celebrating his return with his wife and his friends and they're all drunk. And they, they're, his friend is filming him on his camera and is like, you know, hey man, like tell us a tell us a war story, man. And he's like, no, no, no. They're like, oh, come on, come on, tell us. You kill anybody over there? 
and then you know we he goes into like starts talking about it and increasingly it gets darker and darker and then like he starts to bring up you know basically that there are like people in my squadron and then his wife like comes back from the bathroom and he's like already crying and she's like looking around like all all one take and like like she realizes like he's recounting some horrible fucking war thing and he mentions the whole incident and says you know and i just stood there and i didn't do anything about it and like i'm gonna be haunted with that for the rest of my fucking life and then you know his wife hugs him and stuff and and the you know the it's very awkward and uh then the friend is like to the bar like hey everybody like hey we got a veteran over here everybody let's give him a hand and show him our support and then the whole crowd just like goes yay like yeah like we support our troops like we love you you're a hero and he's like sitting there like crying like a completely like broken shell of a person and uh and everyone's just like raising their drinks to him and like yay you will not see that in any other fucking iraq war movie Mm-hmm. like like yeah. that was uh you know and i think that he does give a little bone of like well this one guy is like not a psycho like these other guys but like he's power again the De Palma theme like one man is like powerless to basically stop a whole you know system of, of sickos mm-hmm. yeah yeah i'm just reading more about this incident again something that is worse than the real like you know worse than the movie is that uh you know, like, uh, the guy who learned of it for one, there wasn't like someone in the group who tried to kind of stand up to them. It was, uh, you know, a surgeon, Anthony Uribe learned uh-huh. of the massacre and told private first class, Justin Watt, a newly assigned soldier to Bravo company that Green was a murderer. Watt conducted a prior uh, personal inquiry about this alarming act by a fellow soldier and coworker. He talked to other members of his platoon who revealed to him that the gang rape and murder had in fact occurred. Watt then reported what he believed to be true to another non-commissioned officer on his platoon, Sergeant John Diem. Watt trusted Diem. He told him that he knew a terrible crime had been committed and asked for his advice, knowing that if he reported a crime, he would be considered a traitor to his unit and could possibly be killed by them. Hmm. Diem told him to be cautious, but that he had a duty as an honorable soldier to report the crimes to the proper authorities. Unfortunately, they did not trust their chain of command to protect them if they reported the war crime. Wow. As a result, like he basically had to go to a therapist like and disclose it in a mental health counseling session wow. in order to circumvent the chain of command because yeah. like neither they both felt that like they were honor bound to tell the truth, but they couldn't actually report like through the proper like, you know, the quote unquote proper channels mm-hmm. because they felt like they would just cover it up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so the system is basically monstrous in general. And even that, like that is the tail end of the movie where the, the one sort of good soldier who, yeah, I guess that is a, that's a flourish of De Palma's like kind of putting him in there. He basically gets a gun stuck yeah. in his face and is like, go out there and fucking keep watch. And like, he just sort of, you know, wimps out and like goes outside and like you know that's it but then later you know tries to do it but it shows like basically when like the jag officers are coming in to like have this guy finally tell his story they're just like completely naysaying all of it and like you know you know uh basically to like just almost like scoffing at him 
of like very Troy Bonner, like it's not going to be believed. It will not be believed, you know, like that kind of energy of like there basically like have a threatening posture towards him. And uh, so again, like that's all real. So then like, uh, why is everybody hating? But then, you know, William Friedkin can make rules of engagement and like waste the motherfuckers. And like, it's just kind of like, okay. Well, because like, well, probably that little girl who's like six year old sister's arms, they like broke or I guess, you know, who they murdered while she's being raped in the other room, she probably would have, like, pointed a gun at a bunch of brave marines if she had a chance, uh, like, all... Uh, could you children, blame uh, her if she down. if she had survived uh, that? Could no, you blame at her at in all? Fact, like, like, yeah. It, yeah, it really, like, uh, you know, if you want to understand, like, why there's such a thing as ISIS, like, you know, the people who discovered that, like, you know, the, the Shura Council, like, they're now... Uh, I think incorporated into ISIS or were at one time. Yeah, yeah know, no, they like, were uh, a part of the, ISIS. Yeah, those are the exact yeah. people who, like, you know, uh, the people who witnessed these types of things, like, they, you know, would have, like, if you want to know, like, why people would join ISIS, like, yes. because of and that. <clears throat> that, uh, I think, yeah. th- that, I think, brings us maybe to the, the last movie we'll mention, which, like, has to be limited because neither of us have watched it yet. I think it's on Netflix, but that ties into that, what you just said, which is his his most recent film from 2019 called Domino. Like, no, not the Keira Knightley movie. Uh, this is with uh, yeah. Nikolai Costa, Waldo, and Guy Pierce. But take get a load of... Uh, I, I mean, I, I'd like to, you know, circle back at some point and, like, uh, watch this movie and try to... It apparently was kind of, like, a disappointment. He really got relegated to, like, going and shooting a kind of, like, mid-budget yeah, movie Yeah, well, because he doesn't do anything in, in Hollywood anymore, right? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, he, ever, he's since, pretty... ever since Mission to Mars, uh, well, as redacted was. Well, though, like, he was... You know, yeah, you're uh, right. I, he was able to... All the movies I think he made uh, after Mission to Mars were outside of Hollywood. So Femme Fatale, um, Redacted, Even the Black uh, Dahlia, despite yeah, the Black Dahlia, way. which I have to say, like I watched that a not a recent while ago. Given I watched that, that we years talk. ago. I it's almost not went good. back and it's rewatched not, it. Yeah, it, it's. It, it, I remember it being really shitty. But, it's not good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that was a a whiff uh, from uh, BDP, but uh, but you know it, it's gonna happen. But he he didn't have the institutional. He had to shoot it in like Romania or something, or like hung like. Bulgaria or something like that. Like it's an LA yeah. noir. Like made no sense. But uh but anyways, well, like he really when you make a bad movie out of Disney Ride, uh, uh you just have to go. Just take I your guess so. go, sir. I guess uh, so. So yeah. he's only made two movies since Redacted. He made uh Passion, which is kind of a more classic erotic thriller, uh, with Rachel McAdams and Nomi Rapace. Uh but like I I haven't watched it yet. Uh it might be interesting. But then in twenty nineteen he made Domino. So let me just read uh the interesting kind of summary of this. Uh it's a crime thriller. Uh it Let's see. It tells the story of a Danish police officer who is seeking justice for the murder of his partner by a vengeful man hampered by the fact that his target is a CIA informant. Um, And that basically uh, what it is, it's all about ISIS. Um, So I guess there's a murder. This cop's like partner is murdered, kind of very classic when they're raiding like a house uh, in Copenhagen filled with plastic explosives and like a dead man. And uh, yeah, this assailant like, uh, I guess, uh, kills uh, 
uh, kills his partner. So the police identify the assailant from fingerprints as Ezra Tarzi, a Libyan emigrant and former special forces operative who par- whose parents had been killed by the Salah al-Din, an ISIS commander known as Sheikh. Al-Din, who smuggles weapons and explosives through a tomato importer based in Brussels, is responsible for numerous terrorist attacks, which he films and edits before posting them online. Wow. So he's dialed into like the ISIS video aesthetic. Uh, Tarzi's victim, Farouk Harez, was one of Al-Din's tenants and Tarzi was trying to get to him uh Toft wants to pursue Tarzi to bring him to justice but is suspended by his superior Detective Vold after he learns that Toft misplaced his service weapon and is interrogated by Internal Affairs Inspector Alex Bow. Meanwhile Tarzi and his family have been abducted by CIA agent Joe Martin who has relentlessly pursued Aldine ever since he killed five of his colleagues years earlier. Uh Martin pressures a reluctant Tarzi into working on his behalf by threatening to reveal his murderous deeds to his children uh and then basically uh so generally okay the plot is like about an isis guy who's like a cia informant and is being like protected by an evil cia agent as like a danish cop tries to catch him and like get revenge and so i mean you could see very classic kind of de palma dynamics but i thought that was interesting that after his movie according to some inspired a real life terrorist attack in germany in 2011 uh that he would go back for like one of his uh, next movies to europe to make this whole you know paranoid thriller about like cia protected isis people Mm -hmm. yeah i guess yeah it's uh i guess he was uh like you know not satisfied with it though and had a bad experience uh in denmark uh he did yeah very bad production issues i guess uh yeah i guess it's one of those things kind of like the fury where he said like he wasn't involved in adr yeah you know and uh like the uh, music sessions I i didn't write the script you know he says uh like uh he, he never experienced such a horrible movie set wow uh so yeah. yes he has, a large part yeah. of our team has not even been paid yet by the danish producers this was my first experience in denmark and most likely my last so ooh, big wow. l there denmark what maybe that was another trap get a you know yeah i don't trust those danes to make a mm. uh you know uh sympathetic uh movie about muslims you know we all know what they do with their cartoons so uh, <laughs> you're right you're right you got to watch yeah. out for that and uh mm-hmm. all this european money i guess canal plus and uh cine plus you know other people and also distributed by saban films owned by Power Rangers impresario Haim Saban, a major (laughs) funder of the Clinton Foundation. Uh, So interesting that uh, that's where his head is at as of 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do like the idea that, uh, like, there's a, like, conspiracy to have, like, bad movies made about, like, you know, uh, whatever, the the powers that be want a shit coat, you know, they, uh-huh. like, just have, like, you know, like, uh, you know, like, kindly ETs as opposed to evil predator aliens and or CIA handling ISIS, uh, you know, uh, operatives. Um, right? I mean, maybe yeah. somebody like De Palma, he, he's too much of a... Like, you, you have to kind of trap him, like many of his characters get trapped, uh, into, like, you know, signing on to some project that he thinks is going to be his cantata, his Faust cantata. Yeah. I mean, even seriously, though, like, I wouldn't really be surprised if, like, I mean, I'm sure that, like, anyone who makes any, because, like, they... 
they do do stuff where like they want to be like involved in any movie that like the you know uh depicts anything like that has to do with the the dod or the yes. cia you know like they, they want to be involved uh yeah. and like not only do, and if like, they can't they... be involved and yeah, like they're they afraid that this movie yeah, exactly. is gonna like you know portray a kind of a type of narrative that they don't want to get out there is there a way that they can still like get in on yeah. it at a higher level and i'm sure and, like, they are like attentive it. to people yeah i'm sure they are attentive to people who like have a sort of history or a certain like high profile like uh who have a history of like you know uh creating material that's viewed as deleterious like you know i'm i'm sure that like it's not like people in the cia like uh are above like having like bad like lame opinions about movies or getting like triggered by the fact that something insulted the troops you know like uh you know they're not like there are definitely people in the intelligence community who would be like oh you know like this movie was critical of the troops like this is like incredibly harmful and disgusting and like it's a national security threat you know so i don't i'm not, not a supporter like, of know, censorship but uh yeah, you know exactly. that whole thing boycotts but yeah. uh yeah exactly um, <laughs> in this case it's just too important yeah to, like, to let go too important. yeah yeah um, and no that would make sense and especially but, somebody who's coming in off the heels of this like last movie which really seemed to like kind of fuck his career up that he made about like u.s war crimes in iraq and now he wants to do like a sus paranoid thriller about isis people being like puppeteered by the cia and all that stuff Stuff, it's like uh i don't know like maybe that would be on somebody's radar at the you know i wonder if the cia like hollywood liaison office also like scans the landscape of like your the european film markets and like the indie different indie markets and the film festivals things like that and they try to like identify yeah. like wait a minute like let's offer this guy like a marvel franchise that requires like air force involvement or like let's start freezing him out <laughs> like yeah you know? i mean i'm not all in on this like you know theory that uh the brian de palma's career was like sabotaged like uh because of casualties of war i mean i guess the movie he made after that was no. Bonfire the vanities and yeah they gave him tom hanks he was yep. too nice you yep. know uh and, but the then lead. we you know mission impossible uh, you know, also he yeah, almost like true. got back in their good graces for a minute by making a yeah. kind of like cia-ish spy thriller though i think even the plot of that has a lot of like double crossing well, evil the bad guy ended up being like the the head of the am i wrong wasn't like the head of the impossible missions the imf actually, like... yeah the imf which is another weird uh like uh, 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 yes, there. Yeah, or, um, what, yeah the impossible yeah it was like a john Voight, right name. maybe yeah yeah it was um and he was originally like in charge of the impossible missions force but then he turned out to be a bad guy so it was kind of like a trevelyan like 006 type thing you know like, yeah yeah exactly uh, trevelyan yeah. um for sure and um, yeah so i think like i mean that movie uh definitely had i mean i remember like liking it when i was like i don't know 11 or 10 or 11 whenever it came out like it was it, it was a real banger back in the mid 90s uh I, I don't know if you ever saw it like in theaters but yeah i was at i think but, i even uh, had like the soundtrack uh on like cassette you know i'm not saying uh, like you know i'm kind of uh you know just uh spitballing with this theory but there's there's a kernel of truth to it is my point you know like there's a kernel yeah, of truth yeah. to these uh, speculations yeah, yeah. um he was but, too yeah. dangerous he had to be neutralized uh with mission to mars and then after that uh freeze him out <laughs> with film mission financing. to mars yeah he was yeah like why to, you know what i think in a bucket he was sent to hell in a bucket. yeah he was going to the red uh, planet in a bucket he's going to mars in a bucket uh yeah and uh i guess he was enjoying the ride because he 
<laughs> got the film on. Uh, um, yeah, I honestly could women. see like it being part of Mission to Mars that like you know the astronauts like crank up Hell in a Bucket like in the cockpit of the <laughs> rocket. And, like, that would have been a nineties. Uh, it's just like that one. I think it was Mercury Rising that was like had a sort of like space like rocket element in it, and Bruce Willis is in it, and he. I remember this from when I was a kid, like, very vividly talking about like how on like a re- a recent like space shuttle launch that like they had included like the urn with the ashes of Jerry Garcia in it, and like Bruce Willis's mm. character was a deadhead and he like cared about it very much, and like that was uh, mm. that was like a thing that jumped out. I was like, why is like this dad character like so obsessed with like Jerry Garcia? <laughs> like I don't get it. Mm. But like that was the, you know they they're dropping some hints. I don't know. You know, um, this uh, like that Uncle Sam skeleton, like flying around in a UFO, like going. Rah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> just yeah. like horrifyingly. Um, the face on Mars. Yeah. Um, yeah. Face on Mars, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we probably uh, wrap up there. De Palma. I don't know how dangerous he was to the game, but I feel like he holds up better than a lot of other people. And I feel like he's he's understand. We need to understand that De Palma is understand. Yeah, uh, yes, he's un- like he's yeah insufficiently stand. I see. Yeah, okay. Insufficiently stand. It took me a second yeah. to like. Yeah, sorry. Uh, uh, I, that, me too. Uh, but I got it. Yeah. Um, um, right. Uh, definitely. Uh, um, I don't know. Like a lot of movies worth checking out. I'm not done with it yet, but uh, I am uh, curious. Yeah, I, th- I'm, I think I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to revisit Mission to Mars. Uh, you know, uh, at, at some point. For sure, yeah. Phantom of the Paradise, I definitely, I definitely recommend and endorse. Highly recommend uh, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, blowout. 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 Probably my highest recommendation of. Yeah. Uh, what well, you know what I've seen of his, uh, you know, even more so than like a movie like Carrie, you know, uh, I would definitely. Carrie never I, grabbed I me as a as like oh yeah this is like the best thing ever like it was like scary and intense and and like cool yeah, and stylish I mean, but yeah i guess i understand why people liked carrie and like the you know that that is a great jump scare at the end like you know i that did get me pretty bad mm. when i first watched carrie. oh yeah yeah no, jump scares really do get me uh yeah. especially jump scares like that which now it really has become like kind of an archetype almost uh or a trope like the the sort of hand from of course of course the grave, but uh, yeah, yeah yeah um and uh, i guess uh body double um kind of interesting in that body double yeah uh, i didn't see that either but i i definitely am intrigued by by that especially you know the vampire theme is interesting yeah there's uh, a vampire big vampire thing going on in it and the kind of like a doppelganger like mistaken identity and like losing your identity uh if you it, kind of being a desperate actor in los angeles the protagonist like looks a lot like young bill maher but slightly more likable. Uh, but it's like, it, it's funny to watch it kind of imagining. Cause the author is also, kind of, I mean, the, the main character is kind of like a, a peeping Tom, like stalker as well. So it's kind of like, Oh, this is how Bill Maher got started. Like in Hollywood, um, mm-hmm. you know, when you're watching it, it's just, uh, it's one of those weird kind of things, but that does a lot with like, kind of like the eighties porn industry and uh very rear window influenced and has a very meta, ending and also very concerned with like theatricality and uh that's the one with the those kind of sketchy acting classes that were like uh, attack therapy basically mm-hmm. and uh yeah yeah so i would recommend that one 
as well. Uh, Dress to Kill. We didn't talk about Dress to Kill. Um, very uh, problematic RE trans <laughs> issues, uh, yes. uh, which I laughed out loud when he said the documentary, like it was directly inspired by William Friedkin's Cruising. Because <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's gotten like ripped on in the exact same way. And it came out in this like practically the same year. Uh, but then he said at one point, like I had the story for a while, but then the, the transsexual thing holy mackerel that just sealed it oh, it was perfect God. after that <laughs> like you know uh, like you just thought it was great he does have a, a, a very interesting fixation with uh with like a cross-dressing and kind of like mm-hmm. uh yeah and and camp and um trans uh uh kind of issues that i mean definitely doesn't age super well because like michael kane is like dealing with like kind of uh his like sexual identity and then becomes like a bloodthirsty murderer yeah Uh, oh it's it's a very limited understanding of like yeah it would yeah not be uh well received uh because that's like the ultimate uh you know uh, offensive concept that like you know it's just a because his urge to to not yeah. when he sees an attractive woman he's really attracted to it like makes him uh, have an erection which then reminds him that he has a penis which he doesn't want and so then to like mm-hmm. basically uh, you know uh, stop that process he has to murder the person. Um, yeah, definitely I mean, would catch like, a few. I would definitely recommend that movie to any like rad femmes on Twitter. You know, uh, <laughs> you know out any, there. if you're if you're uh, a mom from it. the UK, you know, I would definitely <laughs> recommend Dress to Kill. Uh, mm. You'll love it. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. If you're yeah, uh, any like yeah, uh, definitely like the number one turf movie, uh, pretty much. Like yeah, uh, and sure. uh, and uh, yes. Raising Cain um, is is very similar, but it's actually more about like multiple personality disorder like did which john lithgow's character has which also probably would upset uh people in like a a a trans context because like he cross-dresses as like a function of his like mpd and then like murders people uh (laughs) so uh you know he he was really interested in that kind of thing but uh yes what are you gonna do uh, what I, are you gonna do? Um, you, gonna do? Uh, you know, just uh, lay low. Uh, yeah. Stay paranoid. Like, uh, be a voyeur. Uh, sign your soul yeah. to the devil. No, like, don't do any of that. Record uh, don't, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Just, like, uh, don't look through the telescope at the beautiful woman dancing naked uh, in like the luxury condo across the canyon from you. Uh, it's all a mm-hmm. psyop. You're being framed for murder. Uh, right. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, there's just uh, um, yeah. I I think I'm gonna keep on this thread, and if any of the other remaining films are like sufficiently uh, interesting, um, maybe we'll we'll circle back yeah, to uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, again. I mean, yeah. Uh, the the 2000s uh, Mars movie marathon is on the docket. Um, for sure. Yeah, I feel uh, like there's definitely. a lot of symbolism and sus, like you know, spooky. Uh, esoteric stuff yeah, in Mars, Mars in general is like an interesting topic uh, I mean obviously you know it's a planet probably like the planet that looms largest like in the imagination of you know humanity 
uh, in general. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, well, I guess Venus is also up there, but you know, I'm uh, kind of a, I'm kind of partial to Venus be, ever since I learned that hypothetically you could live in cloud cities, like, like several miles above the surface and it would be 75 degrees. I'm a bit you, sussed out by Venus because Venus is, you know, Venus is Lucifer. Venus is the morning star. So uh, yeah, mm, a bit I think the, by I it. think the, uh, the whole covered in acid and it crushes you and is like 800 degrees is very scary. But I want yes, to know what happened. What kind of Phaetonian tragedy amusing. befell them? I did find it amusing a little while ago when there was that story about uh, possible life on Venus, which is obviously like a Luciferian bluebeam psyop. But mm. like, uh, you know, one of the people, uh, you know, the Venus researchers talking about it was like, you know, kind of uh, remarking about how like upset the Mars people would be if they found life on Venus first, you know, like, because, uh, <laughs> well, know, you know uh, what? Okay, talk about a psyop. Like, maybe I'm partial to Venus because the only planet that's ever been landed on by like a probe that sent back video footage was the Soviet Vega probe that landed mm. in the early seventies on the Venetian surface and managed Wait, to take really? pictures. They landed a probe yeah. on the Venetian they, surface? Yeah, they did. Yeah. They were not, uh, they were not slacking off. Yeah. And they transmitted video for like several minutes before the heat and the pressure like completely like crushed it. But they, they, if you look up, the, wow. we have pictures from the surface of Venus from the Soviet probe. Um, That's amazing. That, uh, I didn't actually think that it would be possible. Like, uh, yeah, yeah I'm sorry. That. It was the Venera, the Venera probe. Um, uh, in, uh, wow. Yeah, well, yeah. these pictures are quite breathtaking. Uh, yeah, 1970. Yeah. Um, yeah, or I guess 75. A brief but impactful visit to Venus. Wow. Yeah, they did a. Uh, they did a lot, yeah. That's uh, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Uh, because I thought that, yeah, I guess you know the reasons why it was a brief visit, you know, are the reasons why I thought it would be pretty difficult to pull off. But they did get pictures, which is really heroic. Uh, comrade Venera yeah. probe sacrificed them themselves. Uh, yeah, to talk get about infiltrating the, uh, you know, the satanic Lucifer's. Temple. They went to the planet. Yeah, the citadel. Of right. The, the I'm planet. looking at these yeah. rocks right now. They're just like regular looking rocks. It's so surreal. <laughs> yeah. You know, spooky. Uh, I, I wonder why couldn't he get a better like you know like horizon shot? I don't know. Uh, I'm not gonna be picky. It's still impressive. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Check out uh, uh yeah, check just, out some De Palma. You mostly can't go wrong. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would endorse. I would definitely endorse Blowout. The Fear is pretty good of the movies that I watched recently. You know, yeah, it's uh, pretty good. But I would definitely you know. endorse Blood and Phantom of the Paradise, you know, particularly the latter, uh, or the former, that is, the Blood. Mm -hmm. So, until next time. Yeah, surveil everything. Surveil everything. Watch out for plots around every corner. Uh, you can't trust anybody. Yeah. Uh, the powerful are all erotic freaks who are out to get you and subvert your artistic spirit. And uh, don't sign. Uh, the Faustian contract uh, with yeah. blood. And don't, do uh, don't wrongly depict our amazing Marines as being <laughs> fat or losers. Uh, don't you, know, like, you have dare. Your, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. Watch don't out. Worry. It'll never happen you'll again. Be sent, uh, you'll be sent to Mars in a bucket. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah. Right. Stay away from going to Mars in a bucket. And until next time, <laughs> stay vigilant. Peace. I was not myself last night Couldn't set things right With apologies or flowers 
out of place as a crying clown who could only frown and the play went on for hours and as I lived my role I swore I'd sell my soul for one love who would stand by me Dream a bunch of friends Dream each other's smiles And dream it never ends I was not myself last night In the morning light I could see a change was showing Like a child who was always poor Reaching out for more I could feel the hunger growing And as I lost control I swore I'd sell my soul For one love Who would sing my song And fill this emptiness inside me For one love Sing my song, sing my song. Lay beside me while we dream a bit of style. Dream a bunch of friends. Dream each other's smile. Dream it never ends. Oh. Sell my soul for one love. I would sing my song. 